What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain there might be an assumption that my brain is just firing at 100% all the time, but everybody in this room right now listening to this and everybody else who actually knows me realizes that that's not the case. There are certain times where I'm operating at 100% of my capability or maybe even stretching that boundary to even more than what I'm usually capable, and there's certain times when I'm not. And alpha brain is actually one of the factors that contributes to those two different conditions. Like sometimes it takes me forever to get through a podcast read or forever to do anything where I have to recall thoughts and ideas and speak fluently. And sometimes it all just flows. And alpha brain is the common denominator. It's our flagship nootropic. It's the thing that we developed because myself and Joe Rogan, we wanted something that we could take that was naturally derived that would actually make a difference. Right now, we got something cool going on with our Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes. Why? Because we like Willy Wonka. We like going into the chocolate factory and getting all the cool shit. Alpha Brain's like one of those cool things. It's like one of the magical things that is coming from Willy Wonka's factory. So we wanted to put a golden ticket in the Alpha Brain boxes. And when you get that golden ticket, you are going to win a prize. One of thousands of different prizes. Everybody is a winner. You just have to go in, check out what your code says, and you'll win. And there's some grand prizes like coming out to the Ana HQ, hanging with me, cruising around the facility, checking out the digs. That's one of the prizes. There's all kinds of cool stuff that you can win. So I really encourage you guys, whether you've tried Alpha Brain and you just want to re-up and be a part of the sweepstakes, or whether this is your first time trying it, go to onit.com slash Aubrey and check out the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes. Again, that's onit.com slash Aubrey. If you were to make a list of the most interesting and lovable human beings on the face of the earth and it didn't include Alex Benayan, you fucked up your list. He's one of the best human beings I've ever gotten the chance to know and we decided to sit down and break the AMP podcast record for the length of time with the microphones in front of us. So we answer some questions that came in, we talk about a wide range of topics, so if you're interested in a long discussion between two friends about anything and everything, this is the podcast for you. Alex! Dude. Dude. It's we're, happening. We're here. Give the people the context of why we're doing this. <laughs> because, because this is preposterous. Yeah, because you like doing preposterous things, and Correct. you knew that if we went over two hours at least, you would have the AMP record in the modern era for in doing the modern, because in the prehistoric amp, in the prehistoric amp there's a era, there's a long podcast with 
Rick Doblin, where I'm like, this is pre all of the hoopla about psychedelic medicine. And we just like dove into all of the different science and research and like went back and forth at this conference. That was a very unique thing. But no other amp has ever crossed the legendary two hour well, threshold. Dude, I, my life is creating goals that mean nothing <laughs> and just going for it so i'm happy to add this to the belt of yep. goals that mean nothing to anyone else other than us we so, should have a belt we should have like a wwe I, look, style like i don't want to put belt. any expectations but i would hope that i get a certificate in the mail yeah. signed by aubrey the world's thing, longest <laughs> Aubrey Marcus podcast episode. The thing is, you know, you have you can have a hard time figuring out time anyways, you know, like I put an hourglass in front of you and asked you how much time thank was you, in the hourglass and you. and you just, you know, were like trying to count grains of sand, you know? And you didn't really it's know. not my strength, but <laughs> I also my friends like love to make fun of me about how my sense of time is really bad. Like I was uh, you know Elliot, right? Yeah. I told you about Elliot. I was like Pretty much they all make fun of me. I take like 40 minutes showers. I feel like this is not <laughs> necessary to be sharing. Um, but anyways, yes, my sense of time has been skewed my whole life. Well, you're gonna ha- you're, you will have the longest officially. And Thank if you. not, we will just tell you that it was. And you will feel the, I'll you will take feel the, the credit, sense man. of satisfaction. Uh, give me a participation trophy. I don't care. Uh, you don't need any of those fucking participation trophies because you've done some rad shit. Obviously, we talked a bunch about the third door. And you are like all over the country. You're sharing videos with, in languages I don't understand. With fucking, <laughs> I don't even know Did why. Did you see the Japanese yes, one a couple of I don't even know why they're interviewing you. They're like interviewing you in Japanese. Dude, and then so somehow, amazing. How, like you have like a translator thing in your ear. Yeah. Yeah. And someone's like. So I have like a little earpiece where someone's, you know, sort of whispering the English translations in real time. Yeah. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to go full Japanese game show where you're going to have to do some weird sex stuff in there. But no, <laughs> Did you it's see like a normal the green screen they put up. Of, yeah. It was crazy. It was amazing. It was, You've that was fucking... in, that was in Osaka from two weeks ago. Yeah. So that was really cool. That's dope. All right. So one thing I want to get in, because after we did that podcast, you told one of the most epic stories and if you guys haven't heard this yet you got to go listen to the last podcast i did with alex (laughs) one of the most epic stories where i didn't know you at all but we'd been referred by enough people so i did zero research this particular day which is unusual for me (laughs) usually usually like i do some research but i was like ah fuck all right podcast and then you go (laughs) you go so then i decided i was going to go on the prices right and i go that's a bad idea. <laughs> I remember you saying that. And yeah. then you tell like the most epic. When you said ha- that's a bad idea, I realized, oh shit, he doesn't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> no. This is going to be great. This is going to be and My perfect. mind was fucking blown. But then, so we're hanging out in Santa Monica and we're going to get some sushi. Yeah. And, and then you're like, you know, I did another game show too. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And you told me not to tell you because you wanted it on that's here. It. That's it. So now I got to hear, I got to hear game show number two, the story. This is, if the first game show showed that I was like sort of an idiot, this one shows (laughs) I don't learn my lesson, but it still sort of works for me. So like pretty, to give like people context for the first game show, pretty much I spent seven years writing, you know, the book I was dreaming of reading. I didn't have money because I was 18 years old at the time. So I went and hacked the prices right, used the money. I won a sailboat, sold the sailboat, and used the money to fund the book. And then like six years later, you know, I'm getting to the end of the writing of the book. Dude, this is, I swear to God, this is like 
preposterously true. Like you can't make this shut up. So I'm just finishing the writing of the book and it's like eight months until book launch. I'm realizing like, shit, I've pretty much used like all my money. That sailboat money is not going to last forever. Seven years is like a long time to sort of like, you know, stretch out your budget. So like, I'm like, wow, I really could use some more money for this book launch. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to (laughs) do? And I was like talking to my little sister and she's like, oh yeah, there's this like new game show that they just created on the game show network that isn't even out yet. And I think they're like filming it tomorrow for the final day. And I'm like, what? And I Google it and she was right. In LA, there was this game show network game, which I never heard of before because it wasn't even out yet. And it was filming for the final day the next morning at 6 a.m. It is 8 p.m. and I'm standing with my little sister and I check online and there's three tickets left. And I just book all three tickets and they're like free tickets. I just like book all three tickets. It's filming the next day at 6 a.m. And I call two of my best friends, uh, Kevin and Jojo. And I'm like, guys, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And they're like, I don't know, going to work. I'm like, great. Just tell work <laughs> you'll be late. You'll be there at like 10 or 11 a.m. And they're like, okay, cool. So we show up the next morning and pretty much my – dude, it was so funny. I never forget this. I – I like went home that night and like uh, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Uh-huh. And she's like, what are you doing? Because I was like on my phone at like two o'clock in the morning, like just researching. And I'm like researching a game show. But, it, she, but it hadn't even been out yet. So there's so much been, less research. So that's what she said. She said, how are you researching it if it hasn't been out yet? I'm like, I'm just looking up who the producers are. Because oh, my man. thinking was like that was the key to the price is right. Figuring out who the undercover producers were, who right. the casting producers were. And my theory was, what if I, I sound like such a psycho right now. (laughs) My theory was, what if I take the exact same strategy that worked with The Price is Right and did it on a show that is nothing like The Price is Right, but it's just another game show? Would the system work? (laughs) So this was sort of like a test. Uh And I literally show up the next morning, 6 a.m. with two of my best friends. And what's the game show called? It's called Win Sanity, and it's on the Game Show Network. (laughs) Okay, sounds about right. And pretty much all I knew about the show is it was a trivia show where you can win a big prize. And it's hosted by Donald Faison from Scrubs. And like I'm like, great. I love Donald (laughs) Faison. This is going to be perfect. I show up the next morning, 6 a.m., and dude, I'm not kidding. I do the exact same strategy. I find the producer, find the undercover producer, befriend the audience. I am the first contestant to be called down. And I ended up sweeping the entire show, winning the entire grand prize, winning a car, selling the car. But wait, and that's but, wait the but, wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. Okay. So you dressed in a funky outfit. Uh, dressed in a like funky a- outfit. Do you know what I realized, though, from The Price is Right? The funky outfit wasn't the key. It was you. It was the it was so the, it was is, the extra personality, not the extra tie. This is the thing that I realized about the Price Is Right. Because when I went into the Price Is Right, I sort of just tried everything and hoped something worked. Now, in hindsight, I can know which parts actually made the difference. What they're looking for, because there's a casting producer who interviews right. everyone in the audience. What they're looking for is someone who's on even when they're not on. on. So pretty much what they want is, okay, so they bring the whole audience into this room before they go into the studio, and they're like, you know, Aubrey, what do you do for a living? You know, they talk to her 10 seconds, and they move on to the next person. That's where their, like, main interview is, 
yeah. but they also have other producers watching you while you're not being interviewed to see who's the most energetic person when the spotlight isn't even on them. Mm. So everyone thinks it's a 10 second interview. It's actually a one hour interview. There's like one way glass everywhere. People looking at you all Bingo. the time. Bingo. Correct. So mm -hmm. I knew that from the price is right, that people are watching you the whole time. Which means that you had to do nothing because you're actually always on. So dude, like when other people were like doing their interviews, I was like cheering. I'm like, you're the best. Like you're the, like I was just yeah. doing, I was going full out for an hour and yeah. And you got picked. All right. But now with the price is right, you didn't know the price of anything and you managed to universally luck your way through Correct. this whole fucking thing that that was this miraculous thing this is a trivia show which is much harder with like hard questions like how many uh parcels of mail does the u.s postal service sort every hour impossible to know questions so but so you must be kind of like secretly undercover nasty at trivia because uh, i'm like weird like that like i know like random shit if I hear something random, I'll remember it. If I hear something not random, I'll forget it. Like, which U.S. president was known as, like, the Napoleon of the stump? James K. Polk. Like, I know, like, random Whoa, weird stuff. good one. That was um, a nice one. How many people, now listen, be honest with yourselves if you're listening, how many people knew that that was James K. Polk? I would say not many. <laughs> I say anyways, not many. I wouldn't, I don't know if it's something to be um, proud of. That? Nope. You didn't know that, Sky? Nope. I didn't know that. But this Oprah is the thing about here. the price is right. I realized that with the price is right, the reason I won was because the audience crowdsourced the answer. Right. I didn't have the answer the audience did. Right. The reason I almost failed at the price is right was because I wasn't present enough to know to listen to them. Yeah. Until the end. This time I know how it works. So I literally was like so calm on the stage, you know, when I got called up and whenever they would ask me a question, and I've been like meditating for five years now. So I'm like really calm. So I'm like, audience, what do you think? And someone in the audience is like, I'm a postman, blah, 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 blah. And on the show, it's allowed. You're allowed to call out for answers. Really? So, but I was so calm. Normally people are like, what's the answer? And people are yelling. I was like, so calm. I'm like, you work at the post service. Thank you so much. Boom. Next one. How many, you know, accounts are there on Yahoo Mail? Someone's like, I work in tech. It's like, Three or 30 million or something like that. Wow. I'm like, great. And 10 for 10. And the way the show works is if you get like nine for 10 or eight for 10, you win like a cash prize. But if you do perfect 10 for 10 without a single mistake, you also win a brand new car. So I won the car, sold the car, and that's how I funded the book launch. This is amazing. So if anyone needs any quick cash, do not go to get a bank loan. Or if anyone needs a sailboat, a car, a fucking golf cart, you know, Alex will eventually get one and you might right. be able to buy it from him. You know, the craziest thing is I've trained three other friends who have all gone on to the prices right and like won prizes. No way. Yeah, so. I feel like I couldn't even do that. Like, even if I got like psyched out. No, you could definitely. I feel like I feel like I don't have the, I don't have the ability to fucking bring it like that. Do like, you know what I realize is like people's biggest like issue when it comes to like the interview process with the producers is fear of embarrassment. And I have it too, dude. I obviously I don't want to be embarrassed, but what people forget is when you're being interviewed by the producer, that's not on TV. 
So you can be a yeah. lunatic. Yeah. And then when you get on TV, you can be super calm and normal. That's, you know, one of the, one of my good friends, Ted Decker, who is, I consider one of like my spiritual mentors. He recognizes how we come, we have these prisons of our own embarrassment, mm. you know, that's like they're constantly surrounding us and constantly binding us and preventing us from doing the things that would be the most rad thing to do. So whenever he feels, that whenever he feels like he might be embarrassed by something, but it's not going to hurt anybody, like he does it, like he has mm. to do it. So like if we're at a fancy restaurant or whatever, and there's like some music playing in the background and it would be totally inappropriate to dance, he will stand up on his chair and start dancing. He's not a good dancer. This is not like Twitch, you know, where All he's right. like putting on a performance and people are going to form a circle and clap. They're going to look at him and go like, whoa. Like, what is that? Like, he just, he has to, like, do the thing to, like, exercise that that part of him that's that's in the cage, you know? That's so funny. I like the phrase, prison of your own embarrassment. Because yeah. really what that is, it's like, because what is embarrassment? It's fear of people, you know, judging you, which is fear of people abandoning you, which is fear of suffering and dying alone. Like, if you keep pulling back the layers, in my opinion. Like why is I someone- guess so, right? Like what what other thing is? It's fear of social being a social outcast. Because and then what self. does that lead to? What that yeah? Isolation, suffering. From an evolutionary biology standpoint, yeah, it's the worst thing. You, you, you cast out less- from the tribe because you're bad and you broken. You have a survival about. disadvantage. You have a mating disadvantage. You have all of these other things. So embarrassment is the emotion that comes to try to keep us to protect you from becoming an outcast who dies alone. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. Like, dude, why totally. does anyone, whether it's a guy or a girl, you know, get afraid to talk to the, you know, opposite sex or something like that? Fear of that rejection, that embarrassment. Yeah, but then it gets, then it runs amok, and then it goes and it becomes counteractive because obviously you're overcoming your fear of embarrassment was what made you exceptional which is what got you on the show, which is what got you the funding for the book, which is what got you the marketing for the book, which is what got you all these yeah. amazing stories, which is what gets you, I'm sure, you know, so many, you're so fucking endearing because we all feel this, this, it's like this thing that had a purpose that overstayed its purpose. Mm. You know, it's like long past. Dude, there's so many things in life that overstate their purpose. <laughs> yeah. Overstate their purpose. Yeah, exactly. And that's, this is like one of those huge ones. And they had a purpose in the beginning. They did have a purpose in the Dude, beginning. I know. And the thing about me is, like, if you ask my sisters, I have two sisters, like, what it was like growing up with me, they would tell you I was the most scared kid you'd ever meet. I'm <laughs> dead serious. Like, I had a nightlight on until I was 12. I hated scary movies. I, like, never went on roller coasters. So, and when I started writing The Third Door, I was completely paralyzed by fear. So, a lot of this journey on the outs, you know, I think every journey has sort of two journeys going on at the same time, the outer one and the inner one. You know, the outer journey is like, you know, I'm trying to like track down Bill Gates and interview him and like all the challenges that has. But the harder journey was the internal one. Always is. Going from terrified of failure, terrified of being embarrassed, mortified of making mistakes and essentially being paralyzed to the point where I gave it a name. It was called like the flinch. Yeah. Or like any time I faced anything of even remote like desire that I wanted, I would completely freeze up. My mouth would wired shut. My, you know, legs would turn to stone. And what's crazy is if you hear this like Price is Right or game show story, it doesn't make sense. Like if I feel the flinch so intensely, how, how am I doing these things? And I think the whole journey of the third door was me learning how to do them 
with still having the flinch. Well, that's what not cur- that's what courage is. Killing it. it. It's no. not not feeling the flinch. That's like a psycho. That's like being a psychopath. Like the guy in the free solo is like the friend uh, is like the most. I don't know. That's not. He has something different. Right. That's. It, yeah. It's, I don't I relate mean, to that actually. Yeah. No. So it's not like. I mean. I admire. He's, it. he's an amazing, I, an amazing human being, and this takes nothing away from him. But they actually do the brain studies, and they're like, "Yeah, you got something going on with your amygdala. You're actually like, don't feel fear, you know." So he's an exceptional fucking human, and I'm sure the risk quotient of what he actually has to do actually probably does get him to feel some you know some sense of something but like courage is not not feeling fear you know courage is acting even though you're afraid like that's what fucking courage is and that's what i think one of the highest virtues is it's not the person who can do something all casually because it's no big deal it's the person who does something even though it's fucking scary 100 you know? and i think the thing that people misjudge about courage and i'm like very passionate about this is you know they'll look at you and they'll be like oh you know aubrey is so courageous so brave and when they think about courage or any kind of like mental asset people assume that it's either something you're born with or you're not but when they look at you know someone who's really strong they know well, that person's been going to the gym for a long time. Mm. Society has accepted that, you know, your muscle mass is something that can 100% be worked on. But your mental assets are either there or they're not there. And what I've seen, and I get, I don't even know 100% of your life story. I know enough, though, to know that, dude, there have been moments in your career, like the time where, what was the Indy 500 story? Uh, yeah, the, that, the Kentucky Derby. The, Kentu- the Kentucky Derby story. There have been moments in your life where... You had to literally like bench press your fear. Yeah. Or, or even bench press like your life priorities. Mm-hmm. And first you were doing 50 pounds and now you can do like 200 pounds and people are like, oh, he can, he was able to do 200 pounds his whole life. But you actually worked your way up just like someone Absolutely, would in man. the gym bench pressing. Absolutely. Like an easy way to figure that out is like your fear of, this is what I talk about in my book so much, your fear of like a cold plunge. Right? Like every, there's only physiological benefits to cold water submersion only i can do like two seconds there's only (laughs) right i'm not kidding i'm not like at the start you know like even when i was writing the book it was like every once in a while i had to fucking psych myself up and i'd play the 300 soundtrack and i'd like have somebody watching me so that i felt like i was like oh my god and then i would have it was like a a giant production you know (laughs) it's like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do this cold plunge it's like wow you're gonna do the cold plunge i was like yeah you know and i had to like i'd like use my ego i had to use all of these tools i had to like pound my chest to get fired up and then eventually it's not that my body doesn't feel the cold the same way you know Mm. it's like Wim Hof said cold is an emotion it's just I know that like yeah all right this is going to be uncomfortable now I just quietly slip in and whether somebody asks me whether I did or not it doesn't fucking matter right like you just you get used to moving forward in spite of your resistance towards it I think that word that you just use is the key you get used to yeah and I think the key to like practicing courage from a you know even doing small decisions that scare you and building up over years is you get comfortable with the fear the fear doesn't go away yep you get no i wouldn't even say comfortable you get more comfortable because it never becomes fully comfortable <laughs> right but right. you get more like i i don't even have to go into the details but i had a very scary family situation this year and me and my older sister realized some members of the family were petrified whereas me and my sister were really scared 
But it was the same situation. We realized, oh, because for me and my sister, this isn't our first rodeo with stuff like this. Mm-hmm. We know it's going to be torture and pain for a few months. And then we also trust ourselves enough to be able to heal and grow. And yeah. I think the first time you do anything is the hardest one. Yeah. And then the more reps you get, the easier it is. And then it's also not linear, right? It's not like every single time. Ah, dude, I like, wish it was linear. Right? Like That's what not, frustrates me. It's, it's not, not like linear. every single time I go to the cold. Like sometimes I just look at it and I go like, damn, I just really don't want to get in there today. And sometimes it even wins. Sometimes the cold plunge wins. I walk over there with my towel and my chest yeah. freezer and I feel it with my hand and I'm like, nope, fuck it. Like That's you win a, today. This is an aspect win. I don't like to admit. Mm-hmm. Like I still struggle with the fact that emotional evolution is not linear. Yep. It It's a thing that like a part of me wants it to be like, well, every time I do something courageous, next time I'll be better. <laughs> no, it's sometimes like two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. And I don't like that. Yeah, I, I haven't accepted it. As, <laughs> I haven't come to well, peace. Of course, with it. we like we like things that are like you add one pebble to this to the you know pile of stones, and then the pile of stones is bigger. Like we like right. things that are like that, and that you can consistently get better. I think that's one of the and you can rely on that. Yeah, I know? think that's one of the things that's so like maddening and also intoxicating about golf, because like you can go out and mm. think you're better at golf, and then you'll go out and play, and you'll be like. I can't even hit the golf ball anywhere today, right. you know, which is like unusual. Like other sports, do you play typically, golf a lot? no, I don't play golf too much. But it is one of those f- weird things where you have to look from the the perspective. You have to widen the lens of perspective way out mm. and say, "I'm better three years <laughs> from now than I was three years ago." Not necessarily three times ago, because I might go out there and like have some weird tick in my head. Or like, and I'm just not able to hit it at all. That's a good analogy for you know? all things in life. And it, yeah. So, but and that's that's on the physical side. But and I think it's probably because golf is such a mental sport. But anything involving the mindset, it's always like up and down. And sometimes you'll get the courage, and it'll be easy. And sometimes you just it just won't be there. I mean, because you have so this. And sometimes is, you surprise yourself that you did better than you expected to. Oh, totally, so go, it goes both ways. Totally, you're like, damn, that was like that was really. I really, I had a lot. And of I think that's the there. difference between, I think a lot of people are like, well, what's the difference between like confidence and self confidence? And to me, self confidence is when you've proven to yourself what your abilities are. And confidence is a more external validation, which I actually think both are important. I'm not like, ah, oh, I hate external val. No, yeah, I yeah. like external validation, you know? Yeah. But the self confidence is like that deep well of like when shit's going really bad, you can close your eyes and be like, I've done things like this before. So you've probably heard me talk about it before, but Thrive Market is absolutely one of the best marketplaces to go get your healthy food. And it's not only healthy, it's delicious. And you're able to like sort it by exactly what you're looking for. So if paleo is your thing, you can sort by paleo. If keto is your thing, you can sort by keto. You can figure out exactly what you're looking for and then find all of the delicious snacks and foods that you want and have them delivered directly to your door. And that includes wine too, which is awesome because the wine is sourced for low environmental impact. It's been handpicked for great taste. It's affordable. And you know that you're going to get good wine that's good for you because some wine has up to like 60 additives. Because if you're making alcohol, you actually don't even have to list the additives that are in there. So for those of you who like fireball whiskey and stuff like that, like 
they got some shit in there. <laughs> and you won't be finding that on Thrive Market because they handpick and curate these things that they know are going to ultimately be clean and be good for you. So please check it out. When you go to thrivemarket.com slash Aubrey, you're going to get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial of the service. So once again, go to thrivemarket.com slash Aubrey. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast and checking out these sponsors. I wouldn't be talking about them if they weren't people that I use myself. All right, I got to talk to you about this because this is, this is really fucking interesting to me. Um, so Larry King, Larry King is one of like the, he's one of the, the, the big names that you could potentially get for this book, Third Door. You wanted him bad. Yeah. You wanted him bad. And when you want something bad, that's, there's a lot of opportunity for fear to creep in because the stronger you want something, the more afraid you are of it not working out, right? But at the same time, there's nothing to lose from trying. So there's that thing. It's like, it's like the, the most pretty girl that you see. Like that's the hardest one to talk to in a lot of ways, even though like you got, if, if you don't, she just goes away. You got zero chance, but it, there's maybe something wrapped up in the rejection or something like that. So tell us what happens when you see Larry King in a grocery store. So this is like by far the most like preposterous of the, you know, interview processes <laughs> for this seven years. So pretty much the third door was the seven year journey. And a little context is I went out to go write this book. I was dreaming of reading to go find out how the world's most successful people, when they were just starting out, you know, when no one was taking their calls, no one was taking their meetings, how did they find a way to break through? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name, right? And I very naively thought like, I was 18, I was like, how hard could this be? And that's sort of what set off this journey. And the answer is it could be very, very hard to try to convince <laughs> Bill Gates to sit down with an 18 year old with no credibility. And halfway through the journey, I had a disastrous situation with Warren Buffett. Like it was a train. I pretty much spent eight months tracking down Warren Buffett. I ended up hacking his shareholders meeting, but it sort of blew up in my face. And that's the context. <laughs> that's, the, oh, that's the setup for this Larry mm. King situation. <laughs> that's the context. I pretty much have this disastrous situation with Warren Buffett and I'm at the lowest point of my journey. Um, you know when you spend like two weeks in bed sort of with the covers over your head? Yeah. And for me, if there's one theme of this book, it's that at my lowest points, it's my best friends who pull me back up. And I have this best friend, his name is Corwin. And he's like, dude, you got to get out of, you know, after two weeks, that's sort of when your friends start like, you know, banging on the door, like you got to get out of bed. And he's like, let's go like grab some lunch. We go to like a grocery store nearby and we're literally grab sandwiches and we're like sitting on the sidewalk watching cars go by. And, you know, we're eating our sandwiches and he's like, you know, he's trying to pump me up. He's like, dude, like, don't you have any other interviews lined up? I'm like, I'm really pissy. I'm like, dude, I got nothing. Yeah, and, you know, I'm just yeah, being yeah, like, just, I'm just being just wallowing in it. Right. Like a dog and, that finds something stinky in the grass and you just wants to roll around. Right. And roll around in that thing. I had just like literally dropped out of college yeah. to pursue this. I spent eight months chasing war. I was just like in my lowest. I was, you know, wallowing. Yeah. And 
he's I'm like, I got nothing. And he's like, you know, trying to boost me. And he's like, come on, let's say you had an interview lined up. Like, who would you want to interview? Like, he's such a nice friend. I'm like, dude, even if I had an interview, I'd probably mess that up too. You know, look what happened with Buffett. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Corn's like, look, man, you can't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't a science, you know, it's an art. And as we're talking about this, the single most miraculous moment of my entire life happens. A car pulls up, parks right in front of me, you know, tinted windows. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. Now, again, if you're anything like me, when things line up so perfectly, that's when I get the most scared. And, you know, that's where the flinch comes in. You know, my mouth is wired shut. I'm, you know, full shutdown mode. And I literally watch Larry King walk right past me, right into the grocery store sliding doors. And I don't say a thing. My friend Corin, you know, jabs his elbow into me. He's like, dude, why didn't you say anything? Because he knew like how much I wanted it. I'm like, and this is the thing about fear. Fear is very good at making logical excuses. Always. Fear is very good at making logical excuses. And I was like, you know, my flinch was making up excuses. I was like, look, he's probably, you know, grabbing something for his family. I don't want to bother him. I don't want to be that guy. And Corn's like, dude, you are that guy. And then, <laughs> you know, you know, my fear keeps making more excuses. I'm like, ah, dude, he's probably like deep in the grocery store now. Like, there's no way I'll be able to find him. And Corn's like, dude, he's 80 years old. You know, how far could he get? So I'm like, you know, very reluctant, but, you know, I decided to stand up and, you know, go find Larry King. So I like walk into this grocery store. I like walk into the bakery. What's that, what's that moment like though? Like what's the moment where you stand up and decide to do it? Is there like, cause that's an interesting thing. That's an interesting thing. I would say at different times in my life, it was different things. In that moment, it was embarrassment of Corin judging me. (laughs) And I I would say like, that's what's cool is like, that's that's, a good fucking friend. I've never thought about this. These are the moments where who your friends are really determine your fate. Right. Because dude, if I had a kind of friend that would have judged me for talking to Larry King. Right. I would have probably not talked to Larry King because right. I would have been afraid of my friend judging me. Or a friend who wasn't really, I wrote about friends in my newsletter like last week, or a friend who wasn't really hoping for you to win. To, right. You who, know? Right, subconsciously want, no, Corwin like deep in his heart, he's just such a true person. He like, yeah, he was mad that I wasn't winning, you know? Right, right, as any good friend is, you know? Dude, that's why, this is like where like the, the macro R I even hate using that word, but like the ROI of like choosing real friends comes in. Um, at least in a business sense, obviously in a personal sense. So, so you just felt that, that kind of thing like, oh, well, he him. was judging me, man. Yeah. He literally jabbed <laughs> me with his yeah, elbow. He's like, like, it's like, you got to get up and do this. And like, fucking fine. All right. All right. Got to get up and do this. Right. And then, so you're up and then you're like, but, then I'm, you're but I'm not even, I'm like wallowing. I'm like dragging my feet, you yeah. know? And you're kind of probably thinking like, I'll just go in there. I'll make so a can, show of so it. So I can tell Corin I did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But can, somewhere along the lines, you found you found your own, you must have found your own courage. So what happened, it wasn't even courage. It was like, almost like fear. <laughs> so I like walk in, I look at the gross, you know, I'm in the bakery section, you know, no Larry. And then I'm like, okay, let me like at least check one other area. So I like walk to the produce section, you know, fruits, vegetables, no Larry. And then right then I realized he had parked in the loading zone 
So he's leaving like any second now. So that's when I guess my fear of like failure again, just like yeah. shot this adrenaline inside of me. And I'm like, I'm not messing this up again. So now I have this like bolt of adrenaline and I literally start running through this grocery store down the back of the store so I could look down each aisle and I'm sprinting down, looking down each aisle, you know, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And I'm like frozen food section. So I'm like cutting a corner, like dodging old ladies, sprinting down the frozen food section, no Larry. And I realize he has to be at the checkout counter. So I run to the front of the store, look down each one, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. No Larry. No Larry. And at this point, I wanted to kick myself because he had literally been right in front of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hadn't said a thing. Yeah. And I'm literally looking down at my feet, walking out of this grocery store's parking lot. And, you know, I slowly lift my gaze and right there, you know, 20 feet ahead of me Larry. is Larry King, you know, suspenders and all. And I don't know what got into me, but it was almost this like, I think it was just all this like frustration and, you know, <laughs> resentment and anger from the whole journey. Almost like a volcano like erupting inside of me uncontrollably. I just yelled at the top of my lungs, Mr. King! <laughs> and dude, the echo in the parking lot was so loud. The poor guy has had quadruple bypass surgery. He's 80 years old. I will, for the rest of my life, always remember him literally like jumping in the air. I like have to show you that. He literally turns around like this. like You know, literally all his wrinkles sprung back, looking like he's looking at the Grim Reaper. He's like mortified. You know, he's had quadruple bypass surgery. And I'm like, and I'm like, oh God, this is a disaster already. But I'm like, all right, I'm like, too deep in the game to like pull back yeah. now. So I sort of like run <laughs> over to him and I'm like, Mr. King, Mr. King, my name's Alex. I'm 20 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And he goes, okay, hi. And he walks the other way. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh God. And I'm just like, at this point now, like awkwardly following him in silence. Like he's looking over his shoulder, but it's like silence though. I'm not saying anything. He's not saying anything. And he's like just walking towards his car and he finally gets to his car, stuffs his groceries in the trunk opens the driver's side door and I go, wait. Can I go to breakfast with you? And he looks at me like I'm a lunatic. And before he can respond, he looks onto the sidewalk and sees that there's like a dozen people now watching this go down. <laughs> so I guess like maybe out of like, you know, social wow. pressure, he just sort of like looked at me and was like, Okay, 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 okay. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. Like, I love you. This is amazing. Like, I think he loves me. Like, and he like gets into his car. I'm like, great, I'll see you tomorrow. And he's like about to close the door. I'm like, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and like slams the door shut. And I'm like, okay, maybe he didn't hear me. So I'm like now yelling, like, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and starts the engine. I am now standing in front of his windshield, waving my arms. Like, you know, those like gas station, like blimps. Like I'm waving my arms like a crazy person. I'm like, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and he's like, nine o'clock. And he just speeds off. So... <laughs> I show up the next morning at nine o'clock. Wait, so how did he know which place though? I was 90% sure 
I was not. I I don't. I wasn't sure at the time, but I like Googled. I knew he like owned a restaurant uh-huh. in town. So so that was his breakfast. I huh? was like ninety percent sure that was it. Yeah, and I was right. I showed yeah. up the next morning there at nine o'clock, and there he was, corner booth with his best. The friends. fucking interesting thing is, is that it was social pressure that got most of this situation done, right? Like this it's same, so thing, the same about that. prison yeah. of embarrassment thing that we were talking both about. Ways. Isn't that both funny ways? that even like the most famous broadcaster on earth uh-huh. still like doesn't want to look bad in front of like? Yeah, because then he might have twelve people who tweet something that go like, "There was this really sweet kid who just wanted to have breakfast with Larry King, and he." just fucking didn't give him the time of day i think i think he's just a nice person too. yeah yeah yeah. and but it is funny how both it works both ways definitely did like and you're and you creating the crowd i mean he probably without the crowd he probably didn't try to create the crowd as nice as he is he probably wouldn't have done it without the crowd right so like and it was also your exuberance like one of your superpowers your exuberance which created the crowd you know, so and then like the, the crowd created the environment and then your persistence, which was partly probably endearing and partly also, you know, the Idiotic. social pressure yeah. and the like, craziness of it that like it created this whole masterpiece of like that gets done. I don't know if did you see it, Avengers Endgame. You no, see that movie? There's like where where Doctor Strange is like they're talking about the chances of them winning and he's like one in a million. One in a million. That's you know, still a chance, he can, though, because he can calculate. You're right. That's and still that's a like, chance. Yeah. He, and they, he's like, because he's calculating. I'm like the, the guy odds. from Dumb and Dumber who's like, so you're telling me there's a chance? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's like <laughs> right. that situation is like the one in a million way that that gets done. And the fucking inspiring thing about this is, is that there's always that outcome. There's that way, no matter who it is, no matter what's happening. There's the one in a million way that this might actually happen. And you don't, you won't know that, you know. And like in the Avengers movie, they didn't know that. And I won't spoil it, even though you should have fucking watched it by now if you're going to watch it. <laughs> but like you, sh- like you don't know exactly how that's going to be. But if you're like just there, ready and and willing to do crazy bold things, maybe if you're going to maybe you're going to hit that one. The way I can guarantee you, you have a zero percent chance is not even trying. That's a zero. You've locked that's a in. Zero. You've locked in zero. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I show up the next morning, right? It's 9 a.m. I walk into the – I love you're sort of like my therapist. I'll tell you like a preposterous story. And you're like, let me tell you why that worked out. <laughs> and let me tell you why it didn't work. And yeah, I'm like, thanks, Aubrey. <laughs> and you're like, Alex, I need you to work on this over the next week. <laughs> Come back next week after you've uh, you know really approached your fear of failure and embarrassment. Uh, so, so there you are. Okay, so I show up the next morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> and there he is, you know, corner table with his best friends. And there was an open seat at the table. But I had reflected the night prior about how I had acted the day before. And I thought maybe I should be a bit more gentle. So, you know, I walk up and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, novel idea, right? So I like go up and I'm like, hey, good morning, Mr. King. And he just sort of like looks up at me and is like, <sighs> you know, he just sort of like mumbles and waves me away. Right. And I'm like, okay, cool. Maybe he needs like a few minutes with his friends before he's ready. So there's a table next to him with, you know, open chairs. So I sit at the table next to him waiting for him to call me over. Ten minutes goes by. 30 minutes goes by, an hour passes, 
And then finally he stands up and starts walking toward me. And dude, I can like feel my cheeks lifting. Yeah. And he walks right past me and heads for the exit. And, and then you go, Mr. King. <laughs> at this point, after an hour of like sitting and wait, you, yeah, you, yeah, you're yeah. sort of like really down on yourself. And I sort of just like put a hand up in the air and I was like, Mr. Mr. King. And he's like, what is it, kid? What do you want? And at that point, I felt a very sharp, you know, familiar pain in my chest. Right. And I just looked at him and I was like, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face, almost as if to say, you know, why didn't you say so? <laughs> and he ends up like putting a hand on my shoulder and giving me the greatest monologue of interviewing advice I'd ever heard. And then he looks up to the ceiling as if he's like debating something in his mind. And then he locks his eyes back with mine and he goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 8.45, see you here. And I show up like the next morning at 8.45. He calls me over to his table. He asked me why I even wanted to interview people. And I tell him about the book and he goes, all right, I'm in. And over the course of the past five years, we've had breakfast together over 50, 50 times. Wow. So that definitely wins for like the craziest way the interview came together. But what's funny is like as great as that interview with Larry King was, and as much as the advice he gave me did change my life, I've realized on this journey, it's sometimes my journeys to get to these people, like the quest to get to them that teaches me the most. Mm -hmm. And with this Larry King situation, it completely changed my understanding of persistence. So if there's like one thing this journey gave me in addition to like a lot of lessons and a lot of failures was many, many years in therapy. And one thing I've learned in therapy over the years is that there's implicit and explicit messages in life okay so think of your childhood right your explicit message from your like from me my mom would explicitly say like eat your vegetables that was the explicit message of my childhood the implicit message was me seeing my mom at you know two o'clock in the morning eating ice cream in bed i'm like okay yeah. and it's the implicit messages in your childhood that have the strongest hold on you it's the implicit messages that have the strongest hold on Yeah, because we can, we can sense through those words. You know, it's like when your dad's like, oh, I love you, son. And then you like don't score enough points in your basketball game and you feel nothing but judgment. And he doesn't, but, and he doesn't look at you or talk to you. Nothing right. but judgment and contempt. And you're like, oh. Oh, I win his love by being I, yeah, good exactly. at basketball. Exactly. And so implicitly, you're message. like, right. implicitly, instead of it being I love you, which is should be true and always true, it's I love you if... You make do, me proud of make myself. me proud of you versus which is making me proud of myself. You don't understand all that shit, but you understand that you know how oh, to survive to be loved. I got to kick ass in this X, Y, Z capacity. And that's the implicit. Whereas the explicit is like, no, I love you. I love you always, son. He's like, well, what about that time? I fucking missed every shot I took. Didn't really feel like a lot and of love. Talk to me for two days. <laughs> yeah, didn't feel like a lot of love then, dad. You know, And I think what happens when we grow older and become adults is we never have time to really go into untangling those implicit messages that have such a strong hold on us. No doubt. And <clears throat> even in business, man, like the CEO is like, I love innovation. You know, that's the explicit message. I love innovation is the explicit message. But the second someone takes a risk, a risk and messes up and gets fired, what's the implicit message? Yeah. 
So, or I love, I don't, I want people to be able to voice their opinion and then someone voices their opinion and they get shit on. Right. <laughs> you know, congratulations. Like, no one will ever voice their opinion again, <laughs> yeah, no matter exactly. how much time as you tell them to. Exactly. And what I realize is like, if you look at, you know, childhoods, especially in America, you know, especially around persistence, the explicit message in America is try and try again. That's like the motto of America. But what's the implicit message? You know, let's say you want to be on the baseball team in you know, middle school and you like try out and you don't make it. Maybe if you're brave, you try out a second time and you still don't make it. And let's say you're crazy enough to try out a third time. If you still don't make it, what do the people who love you the most tell you? Your mom, your best friend. Give it up. Let it go. Yeah, maybe you should try basketball. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 maybe yeah, track yeah. is your sport, you know? Right. And the implicit message is you get one shot, maybe two. After the third, you know, you got to pack up and find somewhere else. And if there's one thing I learned from that Larry King experience is that you have as many at-bats as you're willing to give yourself. You have as many at-bats as you're willing to give yourself. And that's changed my life. That's changed my approach to business and it's completely stayed with me ever since. What's interesting then is then understanding like when you're actually decreasing the likelihood by over persistence. Well, that's a whole nother nuance. Right. There. So like that's like a that's something that you have to realize. Like sometimes your at bat might be doing nothing. Like let's say you really like a girl or a really like a guy, right? And you've like laid it out, laid it out, laid it out, laid it out. And like, there's a certain point where laying it out is just going to cause them to be like, stop fucking talking to me. But you chill, you just be yourself, you go on with your life, you give a little space, you know, you kind of lightly interact wherever you like run into this person, or maybe it's in a friend group or whatever, that might actually be your at bat, you know, so like, you do have to have some sense of there's that persistence of but then there's also the shift of strategy. Well, the question is, how do you then execute on the persistence in a sense that doesn't backfire? Right, 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 right. Because so something- both are true. They actually coexist. They don't, uh, they don't contradict. They coexist. Mm-hmm. And what I learned about the over-persistence, which is, first of all, no business book talks about the dangers of over-persistence. No business book talks about the dangers of over-persistence. And with me, you know, I mentioned briefly the Warren Buffett situation. I had contacted him so many times over eight months. You know, letters literally over and over and over again sent to his house and his office, calling his assistant every week that even though I didn't get the final interview, I ended up interviewing Bill Gates after two years. It took two years to get to Gates. And the interview with Bill Gates went so well that his office was like, look, we love this. How can we help? And I was like... Dude, when you have Bill Gates' office saying, how can we help? Yeah, you're yeah, taking yeah. out a very long <laughs> list of, of requests. I'm like, well, uh, if, you're, if you're asking. Um, and right. I made all my ass. And of course, the one that they said was the easiest one is Warren Buffett because Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are best friends. So it's like, oh, Warren, that's easy. And I'll never know exactly what happened. But Bill Gates' office reached out to Buffett's office on my behalf. And Buffett's office responded back and I got a then a message from Bill Gates, the chief of staff saying, please do not contact Warren's office again. Thank you. And what I learned from that is that you can be so persistent in the wrong way 
that you can completely blacklist yourself. Yep. And you can dig yourself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates can't pull you out of. So as you all have probably noticed, I've started talking about some of my favorite products. And there is one thing that I really wanted to talk about because it's been a game changer for me. And it's the personal bidet category. And that means that it's something that washes your butt after you take a shit. And nobody is doing that better than Hello Tushy. So basically, check this out. You get this thing and it attaches to your regular toilet. It's only 79 bucks. You put it on your toilet. And then after you shit, you just turn this little nozzle and then it washes your butt for you. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. Maybe you're one of those people that can just like wipe once and you're done, you know, and like just move on. That's not me. For whatever reason, that's just not me. I'm going through like wipe after wipe after wipe. And then at a certain point, it becomes like there's like a brown highlighter in there. And I don't even know where it's coming from, but it's like one streak on the toilet paper all the time. And I'm like, how many fucking times am I going to have to continue to wipe this thing before I get to leave the toilet? Like, I don't mind sitting on the toilet. There's stuff I can do there. I can go on Instagram. I can like read something. I can talk to somebody. But then like the wiping process, I'm totally engaged. And then I'll just be stuck on the toilet. And that is a pain in the ass literally but with hello tushy that is like done like i spray the thing it washes my butt and whatever that thing that that the thing that's happening that's causing like the highlighter effect and like the smearing of everything that's going on down there that's just over i like spray the thing and then i turn off the spray and then i grab one wipe and it's mostly just to dry myself off and it comes out clean and i just pull my pants up and I go on with my life. Like this is a significant improvement. You know, I have regular bowel movements a couple a day, and so we're talking like a massive time save. It's also better for the environment, you're using less paper, you're clogging less of the pipes, like you don't have to use those wet wipes that have a bunch of alcohol, and they say they're flushable, but they're not really flushable. Like when my septic guy came out and like, man, you're using way too many wet wipes and it's clogging up the system. Like there's all kinds of reasons why to use this, but I'm telling you, just get these $79 things and put them on your toilets. Like it is one of the best investments you can make. And as you can probably tell, I'm passionate about it. And please don't judge me for my brown highlighter. I don't know why. It's not my fault. <laughs> All right. So go to hellotushy.com slash Aubrey and just check it out. I know you guys are going to dig it. And uh, unless you are that kind of like that one wipe kind of person. And if you're that person, like it's cool. Maybe this thing isn't for you. But if you're anything like me, get yourself a tushy. Go to hellotushy.com slash Aubrey and as a bonus, you'll get to save 10% off something that's absolutely worth it. So once again, hellotushy.com slash Aubrey, save yourself 10%. That's the interesting thing. It's like, it's that intention and surrender kind of, it's that, it's the, it's the balance between like my never giving up on your intention, but like surrendering to the greater will of and mind of the world and everything conspiring in your advantage to make it happen. Like, your intention was so strong to get that Warren Buffett. You're just, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. But you didn't have the balance of surrender. Like, you know what? All right, well, I, I gave it a shot this way. One way or another, this is going to happen. Yeah. And like, I trust that. But and you can't trust it when you don't know what's going on. It's hard. And that's why a lot of people who are just starting out mess up because yeah. 
you're figuring it out, which is okay. Totally. When a yeah. baby learns how to walk, they're falling 95% of the time. Totally. But they still learn how to walk. But that's the path to mastery. Like what we're talking about is a path to mastery, right? So the path to mastery is like how you combine that persistence. Falling down and learning from it. Uh-huh. As opposed to falling down and resenting. Right. Right. Yeah. It's fucking really, that's a really interesting thing because most of us don't even take the first step to even reach out and try. We think like, who am I? I'll never get this happen. Like you'd gone past that moment, right? But then there's your mastery moment would have been like, all right. I catch I catch his vibes like this is the point where more is less you know I'll chill and then some way or another this is going to work which would have been the Bill Gates thing but I but I would have had to been, trusted the journey and trusted trust, God trust, and, yeah right right I was not there yet bro <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, I'm, tell I you, it's I'm not me, saying this to be it's critical me many, I would say that's probably like the final lesson I learned even after the book has come it's something I'm literally doing right now in my life is learning to trust. I'm still learning to trust. I think we're all learning to trust. Every, No matter how many times you've been successful, shit gets a little squirrely and you're like, this is the one. Right. And especially- This is the one that's going to fucking take me out. I know it. That's the, Especially, at least for me, I don't know about you, but for me, if you grew up in a continuous state of fear, and I definitely wasn't conscious of it at the time, but I've realized, I was thinking about this this morning, is like, if you ask like a fish, you know, swimming in the water, you know, like, how's the water? You know, there's a famous thing. The fish would say like, what's water? And if you ask like a child who's just like living or being raised in a state of fear, you ask like, are you afraid? They would say, what's being afraid? Because they just know how they, you know, they don't know what they're in until, right. until you grow older and have that side by side. Right. And I was raised in a continuous state of fear. And, and again, I grew up with also a lot of love and all that stuff, but- when you have parents who are immigrants and refugees who literally, my parents fled Iran because they would have died if they stayed there. Mm-hmm. My family's Jewish and they would have you know, literally been persecuted. My grandpa was taken to a death camp and escaped and you know, made it to America. Pretty much every decision you do is based out of fear. Yep. Um, but as a kid, I didn't know that. For a kid, I thought this is just the right way to live. you know. So I, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. I think there's some questions on fear that I got. Um, all right, so check this out. This is this is one question, so we'll trans because we're talking so much about fear. This question is from Aaron Lemma. What's up, Aaron? What's Lemma? up, Aaron? My good at friend, Lemon, Aaron. <laughs> at Lemony, that's like an NQ thing, right? <laughs> you know him. You love uh, him. <laughs> yeah. He's Aaron the Lemma. best, man. I yeah. love NQ. He is the best. Absolutely one of the best humans ever. All right. He says, many believe that having an understanding and even a fear of death hmm. can ignite a sense of urgency, leading you to live a more fulfilling life. Hmm. To what extent is fearing death a good thing? And when does it get in the way? I know how I feel about it, but I want to hear how you feel about that. Because I know you've spent a well, lot of time thinking about death. Yeah, you go. You can go first, and then I'll jump in and, and give my understanding. My, I wish I could be saying that I learned about death from, like, reading a book. Um, but... My only real or my first real experience with it was when my dad got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And 
That was about three years ago. And the thing about pancreatic cancer is it's sort of this like double-edged sword. Well, it's actually not double-edged. It's like 10, 10 times the edge because it's just on the one hand, um, even if you catch it early, there's a 10% chance of survival. Mm-hmm. And that's if you catch it early. And if you don't do surgery on it, it's pretty much a 0% chance. And um, the flip side of that, again, and I hate saying there's a flip side because there's no flip side to something like that. But um, what it does give you is uh, you're not wasting your final time with someone you love just hoping and hoping. You sort of – it forces some acceptance into – Right. Well, this is the last Thanksgiving. I'm going to really be here as opposed to like disassociating and hoping it's not the last. Um, so my dad, from time of diagnosis to the time he passes, 14 months. And it was, uh, you know, really tight family. So I was with him, you know, every step of the way and. You can read books, you can talk to people, but no one can really explain what it's like to be standing at your dad's bedside or anyone you love's bedside when they take their final breath. And... You know, it's been a, it's been two years now, and it's still very hard for me to explain um, how it felt. Um, there's the obvious heartbreak. Um, what's crazy is a lot of the heartbreak happened in the year of the cancer fight, and then obviously in the two years since he's passed. But the heartbreak wasn't in that there's like a it's like very hard to I don't have I wish I had the words to explain it. But like mm-hmm. on that final day for him, um, you almost don't heartbreak is about me. And that day wasn't about me. It was really it was my dad's time. And what I did feel and this is like a weird way to put it, but I almost like saw the end of my own movie. I'm like, oh, that's everyone in this room. My mom was there. My sister's there. We're all, that's going to happen to all of us. And not in a scary way, but in like a, oh, this is how the story ends for everyone. If you're lucky, you have people who love you standing in the room with you saying goodbye. And I think what's interesting about that question is it said, what's your fear of death? And what I couldn't have expected was, look, I don't like, you know, I don't enjoy, obviously, people I love passing away. Um, but my fear of death, I felt in the year leading up to my dad's passing. But when he was passing, it gave me an acceptance of death. And 
I would say moving forward with my life as much as the grief is still hard. I still think about him every day and it's still really hard. Um, I wouldn't say there's a fear of death fueling me. There's an acceptance of death that helps me see my life more clearly. Mm. And the way it's impacted me on a day-to-day basis is I realize, I know this sounds like like silly, but like, I don't know why. I guess I like grew up in America and I thought like, you know, if you're successful, if you're rich, like you die and get an award or I, I, when my dad passed, you know, God doesn't come down in the final moments and give you a report card mm-hmm. of like, you were kind, Aubrey, or you were correct. No, you just, everyone dies the same way. And there's this quote that I love that says on the chessboard, even, you know, the king and the queen and the bishop and the pawn, you know, they all go in the same box. They all go in the same box. And that was sort of, wow, I've never thought about this, but that was sort of my, one of the things that I realized I was like, and what comes with that is a liberation. Cause I think so much of my life, even if you think about the third door, it's like me, like yearning to achieve a place of good you know, being good, being, you know, success, you know, learning how to be successful. And, um, what I learned from my dad's death is like, it doesn't matter in like a God sense. You, again, this is, I'm sure everyone has different beliefs, but I think God loves everyone equally or the universe treats everyone, you know, and, what that does is it liberates you to actually do what you want, not do it because you're going to get a report card at the end. Yeah, I think that's so huge. You know, I, I talked about this in a speech I gave where I was fresh off coming from Buenos Aires, and there's this big uh, cemetery there called the Recoleta Mausoleum there, and they have all of these statues of people, and they st- in the statues they have people. It's basically like they're they're in memoriam report card which is a statue of them like they're a general and they have like their all their medals on their statue and then they have all of these angels like worshiping them like wow you did so good in this life like you know you did god's work and slayed all these people or whatever the idea of the time was you know about what made you have a life worth living and and then you know, you look back to antiquity and everybody's so concerned with legacy and the passing of your name and like, will you be remembered? Like none of that stuff really matters. Like death, like levels all of that, that playing field. Right. And so this idea that you're working towards something at your death is like that final report card is nonsense. Like what you need to be doing is living the journey of your life to the maximum capability possible. And if you're living in perpetual fear, I mean, I'm someone who has, I know that my, it's not so much a fear of death, but it's a fear of suffering that still is not a, not a positive aspect of my life. Like I watched, I was, I had a very close uncle, my uncle Craig, my mom's brother, and I watched him um, eventually pass from lymphoma. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry about your father, you know, and, and this is life. This is the life that we face. But what I remember him, you know, I used to go shooting with him. He was one of the hardest serving tennis players, you know, around. He could serve wow. like one, 
you know, over 120 before anybody was serving over 120, right? My mom was a professional tennis player and it kind of ran in the family and I'd play tennis with him and he was always this like vigorous, like, you know, kind of inspiring guy. And, and then I I watched him get skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And there's also the courage, the courage that he had through this process, but the relentless pain of like, he was getting up and drinking like, 16 ounces of black coffee in the morning just because of the you know all the chemo and everything was making him so tired and it was so hard for him to like and like that was like his the treasure that he would have to like give him enough energy and he could barely like speak and communicate and so this idea of not so much the death because i feel like all my psychedelic journeys have shown me the place beyond life which is a beautiful you know reunion with our soul self right so like where we came from it's like going home but if like on the way home so like home is dope but if if on the way home it's nothing but getting your ass kicked like the whole way that's what i'm still afraid of you know to a certain degree and i think that's the that's the a level of fear that i need to release because what how does that manifest well i get sick and my glands get swollen and I'm like, oh, fuck, I hope this isn't something serious. You know, so then I get all this fear. Instead of just being like, yeah, I got a fucking cold. You know, like, I'll just rest and take it easy. You know, I start to feel yeah. that anxiety and that worry about this suffering. And, and that's something I've really had to, had to work on, you know. So sometimes it's your fear of death, you know, which I think, but I think it's important to remember that we're all going to die. Like, that's what the Stoic says, memento mori, remember, you know, remember you'll die. Uh, the samurai said before all things the samurai samurai must keep in mind day and night the fact that he has to die like that will inspire you to actually enjoy life to a greater degree but if you're afraid of that's and that's the acceptance of it but like in any way that whatever aspect you're afraid of whether it's afraid of suffering or afraid of passing or the fear is only going to be a constricting force there's this great quote and it's not even a quote it's like a tenant ideology of buddhism and but i was reading it in the book um healing your inner child by Thich Nhat Hanh, and highly highly recommend that book and he talks about you know the four you know these four pillars of buddhism that the buddha talks about which is you know number one i am a i'm paraphrasing but it's mm. pretty much like number one i'm a human being and it it is in my nature to die Number two, I'm a human being and it it is in my nature to grow old and get sick. Number three, I'm a human being and all things that I care about will change. By the way, these are like hitting on the biggest fears of humans, right? One, two, and three. And then number four is, and again, I'm paraphrasing this, but it's like, uh, I'm a human being and the only thing I have control over in this life are my actions. And like, those are probably the four hardest things for human beings to accept. But if you accept them, it's like finally seeing that the sky is blue. You're like, yeah. okay. Or finally accepting that it's raining. And we talked about NQ. He has, you know, he's the greatest poet in America, in my opinion. And he has this poem called, You Can't Argue with the Weather. You know, you can't argue with the weather. You can't argue with the wind, but you can adjust your sails. Yeah. And what I like about parts of Buddhism, but also parts of other religions and philosophies is that it helps you just see reality and decide, okay, whether I like it or not, 
that's how it is. And now that I can see how it is, as opposed to fighting it or projecting, what am I going to, what am I going to do with it? Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm trying to step into more and more at this stage of my life. Yeah. Not projecting what I want life to be, but seeing it for what it is and then deciding, okay, what am I going to do about it? I mean, that, that's the, 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 that's always the story of all the great, ma- it's always about acceptance. You know, it's like about intention. And it's again, it's like I wish it was between intention, yeah. intention and surrender. Like I intend yeah. to live a long and healthy life, but I surrender to what my path will be, you know, and like how, how, how determined are you with that intention? Like, okay, you don't want to die. You want to live a long and healthy life. What are you really doing about it? Are you, are you exercising? Are you getting sun? Are you eating good food? Like, do you, are, are you really backing up what you're saying, what you're giving lip service to? Like, I want to live a long and healthy and happy life. Well, are you doing the shit that, that you can do to live that? Or are you just yeah. saying that and doing something completely yeah. opposite, which is doing something that temporarily masks your fear of not living a long and healthy, happy life, you know? So like, so it's one, it's like having an intention and really doing it. It's really going and shouting Mr. King. It's really actually going and working out. It's really actually having the green juice. It's really actually doing whatever those but things are. But you're doing are. it for yourself. Not yeah. for not because you're making a deal with the Grim Reaper of if I have enough green juice, you'll wait until I'm 90. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no. that's I had a friend, someone was telling me, like, I don't know, there's this like thing, I don't know if it's like a Tim Urban. There's like these things of like life calculator type in your age and it'll tell you how many days left you have until you die i hate those things yeah i hate those things and it's crazy it gives everyone else i know comfort and to me it like drives me crazy i have a friend who you know she was my friend her name is mallory we were friends since kindergarten and i'm 27 right now she passed away when we were 25 and like she was if there was a movie of like the perfect person, like that's who they would base it off of. Mm-hmm. She was like the smartest person in the grade, the nicest person. In the, it, it's literally one of those people that if they made a movie about it, you would be like waiting for the, yep. waiting for the shoe to drop. She would be in competition with my cousin, Eric, who died in a car wreck at about the same age. Like literally, that's yeah. those kind of things really kind of fuck Why? you up. That fucks me up that you be- just said that right now. Because-, because it, it, like, it still, fights against my <laughs> how the world should work. He was, and it yeah. still it still drives me. It's a thing I can admit. Things still drive me crazy. That still drives me crazy. You know what was one of the interesting things about, um, and you know, there's lots of metaphysical ways that you could understand it. Perhaps he had learned the lessons. He was so uh, full of love. It makes me literally crawl on my skin, even well, let's, going into that hypothetical. Right. So let's say we're here to learn. I'll, I'll, let's I'll take the hypothetical okay, that okay. we're our souls incarnate. Yeah. You know. Stardust comes into you know we, we enter oh, this God, stardust this so to horrible, like yeah. incarnate and yeah. we're here to learn and if you nail it right out of the gate you know and uh, you've learned and you're just a being that's just loving everyone so and I need enjoying to fuck life up to stay alive <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe the lessons my grandpa's like, 93 right now he's not going anywhere for a while bro <laughs> As much as I love him, he's not going anywhere. So, like, maybe they learned the lessons, uh, and they, and dude, then it was like was time to so, go. And I'm not saying this like because she passed away, and I'm trying to make her. No, dude. Even in like third grade, all the teachers were like, "She's the smartest, the nicest, the most athletic, the sweetest, the most mature, and she has a chronic illness where she's supposed to die any year now." 
even when we were eight. And she wrote a, she kept her journals and her journals just got published this year and became a best-selling book. It's like, and the reason this, obviously I love her and I care about her and there's grief there, but it's also like the reason I, going back to like, I don't like these like life calculators, even Mallory, you know, you're not promised anything. And I think both things are true, which is, yes, live like you're going to live to 90. Think long term, drink your, you know, juice, go work out, go, you know, chase Larry King through, you know, go live fully. And know that you're not promised anything. And I actually think having the ability to hold both those things it's pretty important. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, you know, one, the other sorry thing. Sorry to hear I, about your cousin too, yeah, man. That's uh, all right, brother. It's like, this is, this is life. Were you guys you know? close growing up? We were. His name is Eric. Um, he was the one I looked up to the most. Oh, like, so he, he was, was like, the perfect. He was like, like the guy. He figure. was like, uh, you know, he played college, college sport. He's a college athlete. Yeah. played college soccer. Like he was older enough to me and all my older stepbrothers and like older they would always kind of kick my ass a little bit and like kind of, but he was always like so nice and like so supportive and like so like fun and like loving and like all the best, all the best things, you know, and strong as shit. And like also like in all the ways. And and one of the interesting things about how he passed, it was somebody who was, you know, he was driving on a bendy road and um, somebody was drunk driving the other way and it's always the other person who's drunk and and so but one of the things was he was so nice to his family and nice to everybody that he insisted on buying he had like the cheapest car he could possibly have right even though he could have afforded more but every spare penny he got he gave back and so his car had i don't even know if it even had airbags or if it like had any anything like that and so you wonder if like who knows? I mean, accidents are accidents. Weird shit can happen no matter what, right? But you know, car safety is a real thing, and like I think the family often I've often wondered like that's interesting. You know, it's interesting where there's a point of you're so you don't take even enough time f- to protect yourself and to like do the things because you're so giving and like so so into your service that you know you're willing to put yourself at risk. Of course, you never think about a car accident like that you probably thought about the the ego versions of a car like well i don't need a good looking car you know i don't need that but having a safe car you know like if you're lucky enough to be able to afford it if you can do it like that's that's important to like make those modular decisions to to safeguard yourself if you can but you know it could have just been the other metaphysical thing where that was exactly what was supposed to happen and he'd learn the lessons and just like your friend so it's it's interesting you know it's it's always uh to look at how this all happens we don't really know we don't have the the universal wisdom yeah. to know all we can do is guess and and learn and know that fuck i loved him as much as i could at the time and you know i still think about him i still got a little picture of him up on my mm-hmm. meditation altar and i'll still light a candle every now and then and blow a little smoke mm-hmm. and you know say hi to a smiling picture of him in a boat and then i remember from being in uh lake lake powell with him on wow. a houseboat and I'm sure you do the same with your friend, you know, just keep them in your thoughts and your memories. And um, that's that's really what we can do. 
Well, another interesting one is my one of my spiritual teachers, Don Howard. He's really sick right now, and he's the one I went mm-hmm. down to Peru to do like uh, Wachuma with and ayahuasca with. I remember I was sitting in the boat and uh, thinking about him, and he's you know going to pass probably pretty soon. I'm sorry. And uh, and <sighs> I was feeling really feeling. I was on the medicine. I was feeling like the the grief of it, and, and then I had this like astral communication with him and he goes hey where you think i'm going brother where you think i'm going and i started laughing i was like i guess you're not going anywhere huh and he's like no i'm always gonna be here you know like that Mm -hmm. unborn and undying part of him isn't going anywhere and and like that's something that i can i can push out as my own belief based on my own understanding of what the soul is or what consciousness is or whatever your vocabulary permits like there's an unborn and an undying part of us i mean Mm. shit i've talked to my deceased grandma probably 25 times (laughs) since she's died and that make me might make me sound like a fucking psycho but like i know i've talked to my dad yeah it happens you know and whether that's a projection of my imagination or not like either way you experienced it yeah i experience it and you so feel other, it. You feel it. And it's a productive, loving, warm experience of of that communication. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting. We have all of these, you know, this is a long talk about death, but we have all of these ideas about death, but they're they're not really they're not really accurate. You know? I have a theory that's not enjoyable for people to hear. I'll say it anyways. (laughs) I think a lot, and not all, I think a lot of the self-development, you know, you look at the past 10 years, there's been a big boom in like morning routines and hacks and optimizations and biohacking, you know, you've seen the, you know, boom. Yeah. Um, I would have been a part of it. A big part of it, right. Um, (laughs) I'd say some people uh, take it much farther than you, like to Mm -hmm. like neuroses, obsessive, you know, stuff. You're, you're, at least my, I feel you put a lot of, uh, you know, humanity into it and person, there's some personality and humanness in it. But some people, it's very robotic and obsessive. I think a lot of it, not all of it, is fueled by fear of death. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost as if, if I can, there's this, again, I'm not judging. I'm reflecting because I'm part of it too. I grew up, man. uh, I was 18 reading the four-hour work week. I was 19 reading the four-hour body. Mm -hmm. You know, I, dude, I'm part, I was 20 years old doing P90X twice a day. Like, I, (laughs) Hello, number one person. Like I'm, I'm, so I'm not, I'm not judging or projecting. I'm reflecting on my own actions. There was a, for me personally, a subliminal thought that I was not aware of that if I have the perfect morning routine, find the perfect cold email template to do, find the perfect breakfast smoothie, do the per, you know, perfect optimization of my efficiency. I won't have to suffer as much as I'm currently suffering. That if I can hack my morning routine, do the perfect five minute journal every day, do the per- you know follow Tony Robbins's breathing, do the- I won't feel the pain that I've seen my parents go through, or I won't 
feel the insecurities that I've been feeling. There was this subliminal subconscious desperation to not feel pain anymore that was fueling my obsessive, you know, self-growth. And that self-growth had the had the hue and fabric and like the touch of anxiety. Yes! Oh, yes! Anxiety the whole time. Yeah, you which just stresses that word, the like, killer. triggers all of it. Yes, yeah. dude. And like you can see and again, one of the things I like about you personally is I can and again I've only known you in this last year of your life. I don't know you from earlier on. But there's a difference when I'm around you of like you sort of coming to terms with death happens, I'm imperfect, I'm a work in progress, and it's okay, and I'll still grow. Yeah. And I'll still – which is a, a more comfortable for me to be around as opposed to like people who are trying to be the perfectly optimized human. Right. Because to be the perfectly optimized human means you're afraid or terrified of what it means to not be. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And that fear – that fear has a biological impact. Like, oh, it, 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 like dude, forget you about bear, biological impact. You're in the room with those people, you, and you're more nervous than yeah, you were before. You bear the cost. <laughs> you bear right. the cost of that, and it's probably a greater cost than whatever you know. Lack of gluten. Like if you're terrified of gluten <laughs> your whole life, you know, like it's like fucking. You got gluten threats. Dude, I make that a t-shirt. You, you got like please. gluten monsters your lurking in every. Death <laughs> is worse than your fear of gluten, dude. That's actually. I'm not kidding. I would wear that. I would wear that shirt. Yeah. Your fear of death is worse than your fear of gluten. Dude, that's so Dude, that's so good. I don't know. I feel like that just like summarized a lot of my thoughts of the past few years. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just how what can we do to to alleviate that? And then you look at the great teachers. You know, Ramdas is probably the teacher that I'm the like the the highest on right now because mm. I think he's one of the few that really he's made amazing, it in this yeah. life. He like he made it. Like he made it to that point of what the Buddhists would call enlightenment right. or like what you would want to want a spiritual message. I love that you attain. didn't use made it as like money or. Oh, achieve. no, no, no. You said made it as in as a mindset in a view of life. Yeah. As a soul that came here to learn. Like and the journey it. from fear to love. <laughs> yeah. You said he made it to love. Yeah. I am right. loving awareness. That's his mantra. And he right. did it like he as far as far as everything I can tell and everything I can hear and everything I can sense. He is loving awareness. You know, that as is as much that as is, he can be. As, yeah. mu- as much as any human can that is in, incarnated, right. right? And he did a lot of work around death. Like a lot of work. He I was listening. Well, he literally also almost died, which actually took Well, him the to stroke, the yeah. Death. And that was like his final that was like his, his he final needed the ex- stroke that was his final to get exam. To, yeah. That was his final exam on Have this. Have you seen the Netflix documentary, the 30 minute one? No, but there's a new one that just came out called I, Becoming Nobody. I heard. I it's heard, fucking yeah. awesome. Such a great I got title. an early screening of that. It's such amazing. a great title. There's also a podcast, the Here and Now Network has episode 150. And in that, he talks about how he I took love a you, bunch like episode of, 150. Yeah, because like, I just listened like, to it yesterday. Amazing. And he was talking about how he would do these experiments where he would take a bunch of people in and then he would take, he would collect police footage of gnarly like accident scenes, hmm. people dying, decapitated bodies, people eviscerated, people like. He did this personally. He did this personally. He spent a lot of time with the dying versus in the physical, you know, and like being there at the moment of death and like being at peace. A lot of us haven't been around those moments except for these. Yeah. Really, but he he wanted to like understand death yeah. in that, in a different way. But anyway, so he was doing an experiment where he collected all of this police footage, just the raw police footage, what they used to like capture the scene. So in case there's whatever, this is what the police do, you know. 
he took that and he showed it to a bunch of people without any prompting. And he and then he watched the people and everyone was like, oh, 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 God, oh, God, oh. And he watched it. Eyes oh, well, he's, and he's watching. He's, he's already gone through the practice, right? And then he's like, all right, everybody, now I'm, we're going to go through a meditation. And we're going to go through this meditation where we accept death, where we understand mm-hmm. the physical body and how the blood works and the organs and how that we're this unborn, undying spirit, this loving awareness that is imbued in this physical body yeah. and like goes brings people through this whole thing and it's like and a breathing exercise and then now we're going to watch this again with a different set of footage with this understanding and he just watched as people with eyes open just breathed and like sent love to the body for what it had done so mm-hmm. far like and like saw how the reaction was totally like completely reframed everything they could see and even though I haven't done it that experiment, it's crazy in the moment how you can change that. And he just completely wow, changed yeah. people's perspectives. And I bet people listening to you are like, "Oh wow, I guess too." If I just, I'm put listening my to you love... right now, and I'm like, "Yes, that's right." That, it makes yeah. sense, right? Like yeah. we, ha- it's like getting rid of this shock and fear of like, "All right, yeah, we do have a body, and it's vulnerable, and it's filled with fluids, and those fluids might leak out of our body, and we may expire at any point, you know, or anything may happen." And but that's okay. That's okay. Because that's how it was designed to be. That's okay. Yeah. One of the wisest people I've ever met is the chaplain who helped. He's a hospice chaplain. So he's literally works with only people who are about to die. And he was just so happened randomly assigned to us with my dad's hospice provider in my dad's final weeks. And his name is, you know, call him Chaplain Kevin. And he's, he's like surprisingly young. He's in his thirties, but he is the, one of the wisest people I've ever met. And a lot of people are like, oh, if you want to understand life, like talk to someone old. Yes. Also, there's a lot of old people who are about to die who are terrified of it. Yep. There's something there's just calcified fear. Calcified. You're looking at like right, some, you're looking like the petrification of fear some, that's so hard. Correct. Occasionally, sometimes. I also know I have a friend, uh, mom. Her name is like JJ, and she's like bright light. So the, you know, there's. Either I think way. when you're older, you're just further along whichever path you're on. <laughs> yeah, totally. You're either like extreme fear or extreme love. But when you're a hospice chaplain, you're like seeing it mm-hmm. every day, and you only walk away with wisdom there if you're good at your job. And, you know, one of the biggest things, he's taught me a lot, but one of the biggest things he says is you die the way you lived. Because the big question is, you know, why is, because um, this is something that I I couldn't have expected. Even in your, on your deathbed, if you're, when you're in a coma, you still have a personality in a weird way. There's some people, my dad slipped into a coma on Wednesday and held on Thursday, Friday, three days in a coma. On Friday, they said he had one hour left. Held on Friday, Saturday, past Sunday night. And then there's some people who, my grandfather who passed away last year, also in hospice, this is the craziest thing. He, at like, I wasn't there, but 
I heard from his nurse. He was at home. He had a live-in nurse and his wife was in the house too. At 9 p.m., he called for his nurse. She came in. They had a small little apartment. She came into the room. He held her hand, kissed her hand, and said, thank you for everything. And then she left the room and he took his final breath. And you die the way you live. Mm. And I don't think there's a good way or a bad way, but I think it's just beautiful you died the way you live. And one of my friends, when my dad was passing, heard my chaplain say this, and he had a really interesting perspective on it. So he goes, so shouldn't we live the way we want to die? And I thought that was really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love all the way. That's another thing that Ram Dass says, like, love love all the way. If you want, if you don't want, <laughs> if, I'm, if you don't I'm not, want I'm not being sarcastic. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. being sarcastic. If you don't want, cool. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I know it's that true. sounds like uh, callous, or no, I'm serious, man. No, but that's actually I you wanted, loving them. I wanted, I want to go, I want to go that way. It sounds like you want to go that way, but like, dude, you and I are not the authorities of how human beings should be. Mm-hmm. It's the way we want to be. The only person Aubrey is in charge of is Aubrey, and the only person Alex is in charge of is Alex. And yeah, if someone wants to go another way, like, cool. As long as that's not hurting me or hurting anyone else, like, do your thing. Yeah. Problem is it normally does hurt other people. Yeah, I do. I <laughs> it's do very I do. <laughs> rare that you're like really angry and cold and you aren't hurting other people right it's i haven't yeah, yeah. seen it yet but if you can pull it off yeah your last if your last words are i wish you hadn't been such a worthless piece of shit son <laughs> like that's like it's probably not, funny, not the best not the best way to go out you probably want to go yeah love all the way so you probably want to live love all the way yeah. you know i mean that's and that well, i think that thing. is if a great way to reframe it this is one of the things i learned from the interview with quincy jones he said you cannot no one else can love you until you learn how to love you. Mm-hmm. No one else can love you until you learn how to love you. And I think that's true whether you're 20 years old or whether you're 90 years old on your deathbed. No one else can love you until you learn how to love you. Yeah, that's what Don Miguel Ruiz says. You're only capable of loving another to the extent of which you love yourself. And that means the, Dude, limit, yeah. the limit on the amount of love you have for yourself is how much you judge yourself. Doesn't that make you think back to like your early you know, romantic relationships? And you're like, wow. Like for me, I think about like I was definitely loving the most I could. I haven't had like that many relationships, but in the ones I did, I was, but I'm like, oh man, the capacity has definitely changed. Yeah. And the, uh, ex- I talk about this with my mom a lot. My- definitions of love change. Dude, when I was 10 years old, if I had to define love, it would have been very different than the way I define love now. I'm, I'm sure even for you, even if you think about how did you define love five years ago versus how you define love now? Actually, I'm very five I, months not hypo- ago. Not hypothetical. I actually want to know. Okay, walk me through it. Five years ago, five months ago, today. If you had to like, in one minute, describe your definition for each one. So let's my, start with five okay. years ago. Five years ago, my. I am genuinely curious. <clears throat> my, my understanding of love is you're loved based on this is five years what ago. You do, what you do, and that requires a ton of external 
a ton of external validation and a ton of external things to happen. You need lots of other people to love you. You need lots of success. You need this, it's that whole idea of legacy and what you did and the, right. your based, your, your, your worth of love. Not losing the basketball game as a Yeah, kid. your worth of yeah. love is based on what you do right. and whether that's in your relationship or whether that's in your life it's, and, it's, and it's applied, it's internalized to yourself, it's based on what you do. And then more and more, I don't think I'm completely out of the woods of that yet, but like more and more, you realize you're not loved based on what you do. You're based on, you're loved because you are, because it's who you be. And it's like, that's what makes you worthy of love. It's not what you do. It's like who you are. And like this Paul Selleck says, like how you serve, like what you are and which is, which is love. And it's just as, as we accept that, then it changes the whole framework, but you can still get fucking caught up in those old patterns, yeah. you know, like looking at oh man, well, this person's like so successful and look at me, look what I'm doing. You know, I'm only getting this many downloads when this person has this many downloads and I'm only doing this thing and this company's, my company's only this size and this person's company's this size and then this blah, blah, blah. You have all these external criteria and then that can get like, that can get you in a place where you don't love yourself anymore and then you're not open to loving anybody else anymore and then that anxiety which i've felt in some degree most of my life starts to creep back in because like am i doing enough am i doing enough am i doing enough am i doing enough Uh, i'm not doing enough you know i'm not worthy of love and that can create some kind of urgency but it also creates this paralysis and it also creates all the depressions and all of these different states that i've been in which is not just loving myself for being i am period full stop that's why I'm worthy of love. Okay, so that was five years ago. Is that where you are five months ago? Is that where you are now? Was and then, that- you know, five months ago, I was I was breaking free of that paradigm, right? Like breaking free of that. Finally, like, wow. Like, I'm not worthy of love because Whitney loves me. I'm not worried of love because, worthy of love because of all of these things. You know, I might be worthy of love just because of who I am. And that was like the turning point. And then the next five months has been kind of like, isn't it sucks that it's pain deeper. that gives you oh i don't know what else change? i don't know what else cracks the the i don't know what else is the nutcracker like we're, if we're like this if we're, we're like love is the walnut and the and everything else all the fear and all the other ideas is like the shell well to get to the walnut you got to crack the shell there's a quote from my one of my favorite authors pema Chodron. she says pain will either harden your heart or pierce it open and the default is harden Mm-hmm. Yep. it has to be a conscious choice to let the pain pierce it open yeah yeah to pry open that nutshell right and but it's that, pain that does that it is more often than not yeah you know that's one of the ways we learn which then allows you when you realize that it allows you to love your pain you know because you realize that your pain has is serving this greater purpose right yeah and then you can love and as as soon as you can get to i love my pain because of what it's teaching me it's why ramdas loved his stroke oh okay mm. now i got this now i get yeah. now yeah, i have to yeah. be even more in my heart you know i'm not there but i'm there intellectually yeah like exactly. I, and, exactly but that's i'm a work in progress so that's fine that's it and and loving that like i love myself where i'm at and 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 i can be better like both are true Okay, so that was five months ago. Where are you like today, right now? Well, how do you define love? It's a much deeper, it's a much deeper, deeper, deeper understanding of that. Like it's, uh, I understand that, you know, I had someone reflect, I had someone reflect to me on, um, you know, I've been still, you know, throughout all the relationship turmoil and throughout all of the different challenges that I've had, I've still been 
able to be intimate and be with like some amazing and beautiful women you know and like and people ask like how oh, man how do you do it like whatever and everybody thinks like oh you know it's this reason it's because of what i'm doing like i'm doing something and it's really not you know it's like somebody asked me that he's like take me under your wing how do you do it bro and i was like all right man you really want to know it's like love them no matter what love them no matter what like let them be free and be the best version of yourself you can and like that's that's it you know like be your best be your best which is not do your best you know which is yeah. again yeah you should do your best if, you, if you're doing something but be your best which is love there's nothing better than love be your best love somebody in that unconditional sense which is the only thing that's really interesting to me moving forward in relationship is that non-conditional sense of love it's not that i love you because you scored this many points or i love you because it's like i love you no matter what i love you whether you love me back i love you what no matter what no matter what you choose i love you you're free i love you to be whatever you want to be and then you actually get to love yourself that way you know but that that shit gets challenged you know like the business comes into a a tight spot and you're like fuck because you forget you don't think you, you're, you're worried yeah you're worried that you're not going to love yourself on the other side of that yeah you know and or something else happens and you're worried you're still baptized in this conditional love paradigm because you grew up dude you grew we up. all grew up and it's reinforced around us you didn't grow up in the garden of eden you grew up in <laughs> no. earth you know earth. and there's this quote by maya angela which i love which it says and i'm paraphrasing here but it says love liberates it doesn't hold on that's ego love <laughs> says Yes, I would love if you were next to me, but I love you if you were down the block. I love you if you were in China. I love you because of who you are. Love sets the other person free. Yeah. And I feel like that really goes along with what you just said. Yeah. And there's, you know, one of my favorite characters from uh, fiction is Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> the guy with the nose. The guy with the nose. Yeah. Have you ever read the Have you ever read Trivia the Trivia, Alex. <laughs> Who's the, the, the guy with the literature with the big nose? Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> yeah. Who is the guy with the What's nose? What's the story? I don't really remember. Uh, he made like didn't he make like some kind of like promise or something? Or no, like he a, was like the moon. Helping. Isn't there something with the moon? He or? did. He did have a lot of stuff with the moon. Okay, yeah. Uh, but the part that I'm going towards. Cliff Notes, senior year ultimately, high school. That's, so he loved. He had some flaws in his own understanding of love because he thought he needed to be loved based upon his own beauty so that was his fatal flaw right his fatal flaw was wow, that he yeah. believed that he was only lovable if he didn't have that pretty nose so that his love of his life roxanne was only going to love christian who was the beautiful one hmm. but he loved roxanne so much that he was willing to help christian have the intellect that she would fall in love with him and so he would write the letters and he would write the poems right, and he would right, do right. the things to position and even when christian died he held you know he wouldn't even you know, explain that actually it was me who was writing all those letters and risking my life to get to you in writing and signing them in Christian's name, even in this war and and all of this thing. But he talks about so that so he had some flaws. One, his fatal flaw was that he didn't believe that he was worthy of love unless he was handsome. But the nobility of his love was he recognized that it was enough if he knew that Roxanne was laughing at the things that he was writing. He was like, if the laughter born of my sacrifice, you know, if if mm. I if you're laughing from something born of my sacrifice and I never get to take the credit 
and you will never know that it's me. Still sweet to me. Like yeah. that's still sweet to me. And I know? think that yeah, that's and that's makes- that's beyond the ego, right? It's like beyond. It's beyond saying like, well, I'll be funny for you, but then I'm going to be the funny one, and you'll right. love me more for that. So it becomes transactional. It's like non-transactional love, where it's like no matter what, like you put something out there, you may not get anything in return from it right. physically, but you'll know that you're spreading some joy and love and happiness to somebody even if you don't get any credit for it yeah and i think something i love about this conversation right now is like even you answering your five years ago five months ago and now is how you are peeling away the layers of yourself and you know we keep bringing up inkyu he deserves to be brought up again there's something he says that i love i am a work in progress which is a very liberating and honest and vulnerable statement. Mm-hmm. I'm a work in progress. And I think you and I, and we make a living, you know, writing or speaking, acknowledging that we don't have the answers. If anything, all we have are questions. Mm-hmm. And being able to acknowledge that every, even five months, the answer that you have on life's biggest question, what is love, is changing. And you're realizing, ah, my answer from five months ago wasn't accurate enough. Um, I like that because what that does, what that does is it gives permission to whoever's listening right now to know that they too, not only are work in progress, but that that's exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. That you today are tomorrow's idiot. And that, and you're still worthy of love. Love, Lovable. Yeah, yeah. Lovable. Lovable. uh, Fully lovable. Wonderful. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 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 You're just peeling away one little, one layer further. That's what the third door is. My seven years of being a (laughs) love. Wow. That's actually really funny. That's a good time to talk. My seven years of being a lovable idiot. But I say that in a loving way, not in like a, I was an idiot demeaning way. And like, I was learning. That's the point. Of course. If I, if I'm not calling myself again, I wish I had a better word than idiot. But if I, if I wasn't, that means I didn't learn anything from seven. There's a quote from I can't even remember who said it, which is like, I think it's actually Muhammad Ali. I think saying something like, "If you can't look back at yourself from ten years ago and say, wow, that was a completely different person, you are doing something grossly wrong." Yeah. And I love how like ninety percent of people, at least in my life, love to go. And I'm not saying they do this to me, but I just know people do this in general. They go, you changed, bro. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, and they use that changed, as an insult. You changed, man. You changed. They use that as a slight. Oh, 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 you can't make it out to dinner tonight? You changed, man. <laughs> oh, 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 you don't want to go out to the bar? You changed, yeah. man. They buy you a round of shots and you go, no, I'm okay. Oh, go, oh, bro, you think you're better oh, than, you cha- oh, you, you changed, changed man. You changed. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't drink anymore? You changed, bro. <laughs> Yes, yes, I changed. Yes, I hope you do too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, clearly, I am venting. Right <laughs> yeah, we have this idea. We want things to be consistent. We like cling to this idea yeah. of permanence. That was one of the things that I think you said in the Thich Nhat Han, yeah. you know, list of different things. Like everything I love will change. Everything I love will change, including yourself. You know, like including yourself, you're going to change. The things you like will change, the everything. And sometimes I still catch myself doing things based on a pattern of something that I used to love, like 
well, I, I mean, I'm used to this being something I love, but then I'm really in it and I'm like, do I even love this anymore? Like, am I even enjoying this? Or is this just a pattern of something I used to enjoy? Does it feel good because I'm just going and... Yeah, it's just like you're just kind of doing the same thing over again. And and then it's just liberating yourself from that and being okay with like, all right, well, maybe I'm... And and maybe it won't be, again, it won't be linear, linear. It'll be erratic. It'll be like, all of a sudden, like, for now... I don't want anything to do with what was formerly the things that I love. I want to be totally different. Then maybe you might go back and be like, actually, I like some of that stuff. And then I'll go back and it's all fucking fine. I'm sorry. I'm like laughing because they just had like a preposterous. I don't know if you have like commercials in the middle of your podcast, but it'd be funny if like this episode is brought to you by Trinity Care Hospice <laughs> Providers. <laughs> just like this episode of the Aubrey Marcus podcast has been brought to you by Gorgon's coffins. Like, just like really dark. Sky, but, Sky, get on that. We need hospice providers. Can I just say it is relieving it. I, I'm, I don't know if you're enjoying this. I'm enjoying this because it's shit. We don't talk about. And I think it's shit that permeates all aspects of our life, but we don't talk about it because Number one, there's not really a space to talk about it. And if there is, it's not a cool space to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I say thank you to you for – and also, who was the Lemon? Who was that person who asked that for? Yeah, Aaron Lemon. Wow, that guy deserves friend, some love. Right? He put us on this whole 45-minute tangent with that thing. He was just – Be careful what you just, ask He was us. just <laughs> typing away on his, on his Twitter. All right, let's open it up. Who's, what's next? What else do we got? All right. <clears throat> okay, we'll go with the first question here. And this is with uh, – Feli Piap 77. He says, how to limit the suffering that comes with being a compassionate person. I struggle mm. a lot with that. The say, suffer- say, say it again. Yeah. How do you limit the suffering that comes with being a compassionate person? Mm, I like that question. You go, you go first. This is hard because I like, like you see the suffering in the world. And if you like, if you try to actually empathize with all of the suffering in the world and, and, and like actually compassion means actually literally to be with someone's suffering. Compassion, like passion means suffering from an etymological root really? word. Yeah, that. passion means suffering. Calm is That's from what Latin. it means. With, yeah, it means pa- with suffering. It means with someone's suffering. So literally, when you're saying compassion, it means you're with someone suffering. Which passion means suffering. Passion means suffering. So the passion of the Christ is the suffering of the Christ. Yeah. So I need to look this up. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So this is fascinating. So, me, but okay. so like compassion inherently is placing yourself in a position right. to be with the suffering. And it's, I think, something that we need to dip into, but we can't live with the suffering of the world because it will ultimately be somewhat debilitating right like we can also choose and then the opposite of that word is compersion which is with someone's pleasure and nobody talks about that i don't know that word i've heard the word a couple times before i don't know it that often though compersion so there's like compassion and compersion that's where you're with someone's pleasure that's where when you have a good friend and like when you got that larry king thing like your homie was in compersion he was like hell yeah man like he was fired up or when i watch my friends win a mma fight i'm like so excited for them i'm with them in their pleasure so i think there is a place cool. for us to be both yeah. compassionate and comp- and both have compassion yeah, and like compersion that. so that we feel what they feel, we see them, and yeah. then we're able to kind of be with them. But we don't have to – there's not a burden to live there. 
with them in that there's a burden there's an opportunity to take a higher perspective and to dip into compersion and be with someone's pleasure dip into someone's suffering and be with them in their suffering so we understand it and that way that builds that bond of friendship and that that famous avatar line that shook the world which is i see you right that's that's really what you're saying like i see you i feel what you feel you know like i'm with you but i don't think it's possible for us to live in that that's literally the definition of intimacy i see you yeah and that's also the definition of the word namaste i i see you yeah so i think it's like i think it's just a matter of know that you need that's a good thing to have but don't feel the burden that you have to live there with the world's suffering you can also choose to live there with the world's pleasure and to live there with all of the full expression of everything that's going on you know so i think that would be that would be my advice is like good like i'm glad like i'm happy for everybody who can feel compassion but also be there with all the other full expression of everything else too i like that read the question one more time again please how do you limit the suffering that comes with being a compassionate person? I struggle a lot with that. Okay. I'll say three things. First, mm-hmm. a great question. First thing is compassion is beautiful. So I commend you for mm-hmm. practicing it and being on that path. Number two goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is Suffering and pain are a natural part of the human experience. Number three, I think, is the uh, the meteor part of the question that's sort of the subtext. And I might be projecting my own experiences onto it. But I know that I was raised, yes, with a lot of love and a lot of support. I feel I won the lottery in many ways. At the same time, I grew up with an implicit message that someone else's suffering is my responsibility. Mm. Wow, that's... I hope some family members are not listening to this right now. <laughs> but like, I, as my, and I love them. I, that's, why, that's why I said I hope they're not... Because I actually love them. Um, but I was raised in a way of someone else's suffering is part of my responsibility. Um, which I think every relationship, there's a healthy flavor of that, which is if someone you love is suffering, be there for them. But I think there's a difference between support and showing up and it is your responsibility to manage their pain and not theirs. Hmm. Yep. And when you grow up as a child that way and you think that that's the way every relationship goes it becomes harder and harder the older you grow up to live a manageable life. And the first step of the 12 steps is I am powerless over blank and trying to have power over it makes my life unmanageable. And for me, I don't know if that's where the question was going, but for me, the subtext I saw under it is I'll find myself compassion leading me to now I have to fix it for them. Mm. Um, Now I need to not even fix, solve it. Um, Not out of fear, but out of love, like out of love, out of care. And with many relationships, that will make your life unmanageable. And God forbid, 
you know, and I say God forbid, but it's very common. Many times the people on the receiving end of that don't know boundaries. That's how those relationships sort of exist. So again, there was the wording of that question was really interesting to me because it's like, how do you limit? This? He didn't even say take away. Yeah. The word limit instantly made me think of boundaries because it sounds like he's okay with a little bit of the uncomfortability of the compassion, which compassion does come with uncomfortability. But it sounds like, and I might be reading into it, but it sounds like the pain of his compassion is running amok. Yeah. And I can relate to that. And to me, it's because I didn't have A, boundaries, and B, an understanding that I am powerless over their journey. Mm-hmm. And the hardest part is when someone you love is going down a path of pain or self-sabotage or other sabota- uh, sabotaging uh, and not being able to help. Yeah. When you're on a boat and you see someone you love drowning and as far as you reach out your hand, you can't reach them is one of the most painful experiences in life. And it's more painful the more you love that person. Yeah. And I think one of the beauties of 12-step programs, whether it's AA or Al-Anon or anything is, at least for me, showing me that And it's hard because I was raised the opposite. I was raised that if you love your blank, you will do anything to save them. And I grew up feeling like that actually, it made sense to me. Um, And it's been very hard to unwind those thoughts of the person is an adult. This is hard for me to even talk. This is very new to me and it's still a very... Like my back is like tensing up and like, <laughs> it's still very new for me. And like, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but yeah. it's, it's also, you know what, you know, one thing that this, thank remi- you for jumping one in thing, here, One I, thing yeah. that reminds me of is like, if a kid falls down and the parents, you know, and the kid starts to cry and you know, the kid's not badly hurt, you know, or even if they are yeah. like pretty, yeah. like if the parents go, Oh my God. Oh, and they start freaking out. Then the kid's going to freak out more because right, we look for right. social proof of of of, of our, our suffering yeah. and our and yeah. our pain right so some people think that the compassion is to like really sit with them in this and agree with what they're saying in like such a deep way that they justify their pain and then they'll you'll both ruminate in it together and you think that's compassion but that's actually not the most compassionate thing to do the best thing to do when the kid falls down is like you're all right buddy like you're all right it's okay like no worries like and then that then they look at you and they're like oh yeah maybe i am okay you know, and like the same thing, you know, I have a couple friends going through really challenging emotional things right now. And so it's not denying the fact that they fell down. It's not denying the fact that they skinned their knees. It's the fact that like, no, you're all right. Like, no matter what this is, like, it's going to be okay. And and then so part of what I'll do is I'll not blind, not be blind to what they're going, not be callous, be like, yeah, that fucking that's that's rough. But then providing the perspective of like the times that you've been through and then the times where you've made it through and then and believing that they'll make it through and that it is going to be all right and then when you can actually offer that other perspective of yeah and then turn it into laughter or turn it into something else like you actually end up switching it from this rumination into the pain into like 
yeah, it's going to be all right. This is the human experience. It has all this pain and suffering and it's all fucked up and we can laugh about these different things and then it like alleviates it because ultimately we've all been through hard shit and we're all okay. We're all still laughing and we're all still enjoying it for the most part, you know? And even if we're not, with that under that greater understanding of death and where we're going and the fact that, you know, death is just a going home, even if that thing is does involve dying, you know, instead of the projecting your own horror and your own fear of death, projecting your own confidence of like, oh, well, it looks like you get to go home a little earlier, mm. you know, like, and that's, and then, so you yeah. come with that kind of love of like, this is a ceremony that you get to experience before any of us. And like, wow, like that's, I know this is hard, but that's an, also an amazing and beautiful thing. And then being able to reframe with a different perspective, with a broader perspective, is often one of the most compassionate things that you can do because that's going to be, I, it's basically saying, I see you and it's okay. And I love you no matter what. Like, mm. I, see you dr- I see you drowning in this, yeah. in this shallow water and I know that you could just stand up and uh, you'll stand up uh, whenever you want. Yeah, dude. <laughs> You know, God, God, that analogy makes me really uncomfortable because it's so true. Yeah. I know that this conversation is going to interesting places because this is the most uncomfortable I've been. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I'm not saying that as like a compliment or as an insult. It's just an observation. I haven't been this uncomfortable in a (laughs) long time. And I'm comfortable for the most part. But I'm saying like there's a good 15% of this conversation where I'm sort of like wanting to scoot my chair back a little and be like, this is... Ah, it God. is a weird thing. I, what is it? Is it shame? Is it fear? What? I don't know. What it is. I don't know what's going on. I think it's the it's there's some hidden there's some hidden judgment of the situation. There's like a hidden judgment of that this isn't what it's supposed to be. I did not write this book to come on podcast to talk about my family's <laughs> life. Like this is that's I think that, and I think it's new to me. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing. Yeah. It's new to me. If we're having this conversation a year, I'd probably be less squirmy. Yeah. Like to look at someone, let's say, you know, there's a funny scene. I think it was like Robin Hood men in tights or whatever. I think is um, the reference I'm making. But anyway, someone falls like Little John or somebody falls in, falls into some water and he's drowning. They're like sword or stick fighting on a bridge. And maybe it was Prince of Thieves. I don't know if it was the real one or the joke one, whatever. But he like falls in the water. He can't swim. And then and he's like, oh, I'm drowning. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. And then he's like, actually, it's you can just stand up you know what i mean but like and that's so from an emotional standpoint there's so many times that we can see that like all you have to do is stand up and you're out have you in your life give me a tangible thing it's probably a hard question so take a second like when have you been there where if you go back in time you'd be like yo aubrey just stand up yeah like when would you go back in time well so many times in relationships it's like that like where it's like the whole world is crashing down and like everything i'm like crawling around on the ground and like not knowing if i'm gonna cry or vomit or like like i'm just at the very bleak end of my own internal emotional pain whereas like the aubrey now could be like hey man you're gonna be fine like all you have to do is love yourself and stop looking at this so easy in stop hindsight. looking at this mirror <laughs> so easy, that is showing right, you that you're not right. worthy of love and just stand up into your own right. love and sovereignty you know and oftentimes you see it in relationship because that was yeah. causes so much pain you know in in so many in so many people is like 
just stand up and love yourself and know that you're going to be okay. And maybe that this person isn't right it's for you. It's the simplest advice, the hardest, the hardest to, execute. to execute. Totally. And the reason it's the hardest is not because it's so complicated, but if you just look at statistically in the world, it's one of the least implemented things, and it's which makes it probably the hardest. One yeah. of the hardest. Yeah. Oh, man. It's... It's such a good analogy to drowning <laughs> when in shallow water. Damn. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a great memoir title. Yeah. Drowning, drowning in, shallow, in shallow, drowning water. shallow water. That's like the story of, Damn. It's the story of most drowning humans. Drowning in shallow water. The Alex Benayan story. <laughs> the story that's, of all dude, humans that's so ever. Good. That's you know, so the story good. of all humans ever. Bro. I love it. It's like one of my favorite things to do at like dinner parties, like go around the table and come up with funny memoir titles for people. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like, uh, I love myself on a good day. The blah, blah, blah story. Like, it's just like. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. So this next question, um, this next question is actually somewhat related, I think. And this question is from Angela Stitch. Angela Stitch 1. Sup, Angela Stitch 1. Angela Stitch 1. Uh, how do you You're get. You're on live. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next how... caller. <laughs> how do you get past your physical self? And value the unseen soul when the world is focused on appearances. I always get caught up in the approval of others and get afraid of losing love or acceptance, even when I know I am enough as I am. Drowning in shallow water. The memoir of Angela Stitch. The memoir of all people, <laughs> really, right? Really? Way to throw her under the bus. But it's, it's the memoir no, it's of true. all people, right? Like... She's, damn drowning in shallow damn it is someone's gonna run with that we're gonna like in fi- <laughs> and like in like three years like check the new york times bestseller and there's like, like a book perennial, out, perennial bestseller. like drowning in shallow water and then acknowledge like thank you to alex and aubrey for <laughs> bullshitting for three hours on his podcast and giving me the idea that changed my life but she so she knows it she knows like i i always get caught up in the approval of others and get afraid of a fruit of losing love or acceptance even when i know i am enough as i am so she knows she's on the path she, yeah, she's, on the, she's path. on the path she knows that she can stand she knows that she can stand but she's still drowning in the, what the world is saying the world's saying you're drowning you're not you know you need to do this you need to do yeah. this but she actually knows that the water's yeah. shallow but she's still, and that's the interesting part of she's this question. She's at the start. She's at the start. Yeah, and like that, we're yeah. we're and we're a lot of us who are on the path know that. We As all am know. I. I'm at the start too. Yeah, I'm, yeah, me too. Like it's like I know I know this is shallow water. I know I can stand, but sometimes we like our fear will trick us into believing that oh no, the water's deep. Like we're really going down this time, you know. But some part right. of us is like no, actually it's not. Like I'm okay. All right, I'm Angela, I'm with you. I'll share something I don't like talking about. The I've gotten much better, much, much better now compared to five to 10 years ago of having very loving thoughts in my head. Biggest area for improvement, body image thoughts. I would say that disproport, if I had to categorize negative thoughts in my head, I would say on the average macro, it's gone down drastically in the past five years through conscious effort and awareness still the highest proportion by i don't even think there's a close second Mm. i i would say i would say the second place is probably like no one wants to they secretly don't like you Mm. yeah Uh, not you but me Yeah. yeah um body image is the biggest one and 
Yeah, bro. I just, <laughs> when I was a kid, even growing up in my extended family, number one compliment people would get, have you lost weight? Number one compliment. Number one critique? Have you put on a little? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's just within my family. Like, walk out. I grew up in Los Angeles. Step onto the street. Look up. What does every fucking build? And there's the thing about, like, uh, as much as I love, like, the body positive movement, like, it's based off of the foundation of the non-body positive move. It's not like an isolated yeah. move. No, it's like brands wanting to. And again, I'm not bashing it. I think it's better than not. But. Yeah. But like, you know, to put a body positive like Dove commercial right before the body unpositive Dove commercial, like. Yep. It's still there. The implicit message is still there. Yeah. Right. The implicit yep. message is still there. And the fact that you have to even call it a body positive. That means there's thing, a body negative. And that you're getting right, press right. about it being a body positive right, thing. Right, 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 right. And Rather again, than it just being like, these are bodies. And like people stop seeing it in that way. But that's that programming is running so deep. You know, so, so, so deep. But and it's also culturally relative too, right? Like you look at the Renaissance ideal of beauty. Versus the modern ideal of beauty. Right. And they're fucking drastically different. Right. You know what I mean? Like. Right. Yeah. Even 300 years ago. The right. Idea like of a model it, was very. Oh, forget it. 300 years ago. Uh, where was. When was Marilyn Monroe around? Is that the 50s? Yeah. 60s? Yeah. yeah. Different. Very different. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's someone. I won't name her. But someone who I love very much in my life. Um is in the same boat as me with like these body image thoughts that we're both actively working on. And she wrote a sign for herself, which I love that she like taped above her bed, which says your body was loaned to you by God. That's enough reason to love it. And while I'm still working on that being a practical way of living, I love it being a aspirational way. Yeah. And it's something that I will think back to multiple times a day. And there's a thing too. This is the challenge. If I'm going to have that thought about myself, and this is what I talk about another thing I don't want to talk about publicly, that's something I need to do when I look at other people. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, because if you're not doing the it more with yourself, I judge myself, the, the more I self. judge other people. The more I judge other people, the more I judge myself. And if I want a good litmus test of how uh, judgmental I'm being toward myself, how judgmental am I being towards other people? Yep. Pretty good litmus test because they are pretty correlated. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I think for me, a lot. I feel of like my... I'm going to be like damned to hell after everything I've admitted <laughs> yeah. on this podcast. A lot of my <laughs> so much shame. A lot of um, my, uh, a lot of my stretch own, <laughs> stretch it out, work it out. A lot of my own self, Mike's own self-love and self-confidence comes from a feeling, a, a sense of being in a powerful body. So like when I get sick, I get really, right, I get right. really emotionally thrown. It's my identity. Like yeah. when my body's You're weak good. or injured, right. then all of a sudden, like I I get really kind of off, wow. thrown off wow, because yeah. then I'm no longer like, that's where the sense of confidence I derive is, is like, oh, well, I got this strong 
physical body. So like a deep challenge for me is when something else is going on, when I have an illness or when I have an injury and I can't do something. And it's like, we'll talk about this past year. Whoa, right? Yeah. I mean, sure. I got in that car wreck and hey. then recognizing that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even breathe, kiss, taste, anything like wow. that. Right. But everybody still loved me. And then, so that taught me, uh -oh, I actually, so, right. yeah. So it's that like, actually uh -oh, taught what? me the other, the right. other thing, which is like, wow, actually I can love myself even if I'm, you know, been in this ghastly face, you know, transfiguring car accident and I've done these things and maybe if my body doesn't work, but still like, I'm not fully ready to accept that. Like if I really ask my body, like, Hey body, what do you want? Body's like, yeah, man, a lot more yoga, you know, some stretching, like mm. swim some laps. And I'm like, cool. We're going to hit the kettlebells today. You know what right. I mean? Like, cause like I'm still attached to this, like the fear of what will happen if I don't have the mass. Right, that like I've, the size that and I've the said power. Is, that, I, that I've said is what gives me worthy of respect and love. And it's still in there deep for me. It's still fucking in there, you know? So, like, I'm drowning in my own shallow water of, like, what should I, What what what's the best thing, My what does my body want? Well, my body, yeah, my body definitely wants, like, probably to shed a few pounds of muscle and to stretch a little more and to, like, open up my hips and, you know, like, actually work on releasing Dude, some open tension. open up those hips, man. <laughs> and what am I doing? Squatting. You know, like not, not that, you know, and that's, a, that's an interesting, it's an interesting reflection and wow. it's based Literally, upon how much I love myself. when you're meditating, you're sitting down and your body says, you need to stretch it out today. And you're like, cool. Nope. Thanks body. <laughs> nope. Not going to do it. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. First step to change is awareness. Yeah. You want to hear something I wrote down in the middle of the night last night? This doesn't happen often, but like, I normally sleep very well. Every now and then I'll wake up either with like a nightmare or a, I thought and I had one two nights ago and this happened ha hasn't happened in a long time and the thought that came to me was which I guess is sort of like the summary of this past year of my life which is the first step in changing your reality is seeing your reality the first step in changing your reality is seeing your reality Second step, don't look away. And I like, by the way, this is like how I, my brain, at like three o'clock in the morning, I wake up with like, well, this is what I guess what happens is I have thoughts over the course of a year. And then at some point my brain puts them in the right order yep, yep. and, you know, it took a year and put it in the right order. It's the second part of that realization that I think is the hard part. Don't, because right now you just admit it to, you, you see the first part. Mm -hmm. Which is if you want to change your reality, you have to see your reality. And your body is telling you, you know, stretch. And, do you... and by the way, these are all positive stuff, whether to stretch or do kettlebells. Mm -hmm. What if you're in an abusive relationship? What sure. if your boss is abusive? Sure. What if you're, what if the economy is about to collapse? You know, the first step, you know, I was just, I was on an airplane on the way here and I saw, uh, remember the movie, The Big Short or the book, The Big Short? Mm -hmm. Pretty much the whole movie is about a guy who, in order to change his reality, which is understanding the reality of the economy about to collapse, was the first person to see it and to not look away. That's, I think it's the, not looking away. Because if you're going to see something that's wrong with your life or your reality, the human instinct when you see something scary is what? 
Look away. Yeah, look away. Yeah, you're a human being. Congratulations, you're a human being. If you actually want it to change, or forget about even change, if you even want to respond to it, you need to find the courage, the courage to not look away. And let's talk about what looking away can actually be, because looking away can be oh, it can be my favorite topic. It can be it can be a form of self medication, right? It can be like Instagram. Right, yeah, distraction is a way FaceTime, of looking away. Working alcohol is a way. Any kind of thing that takes your mindset disassociating, or it could be actually rationalizing. Well, I and this is where you get slippery, and I've like watched myself be really slippery with it. And like, I've had to learn how to like hold my slippery rationalization self down and be like, well, you know, like I run on it. So like, I can't just like lose a bunch of weight and like do yoga. Like I got to be this for for the health of my company. And then there's people whose salaries depend on. So I'll get slippery in my way of justifying this thing, which is really all ego. But like, I'll find some slippery half cocked way of justifying this thing that I'm doing. And yes, granted, this is a novel, trivial thing that I'm talking about. But like, nonetheless, like we get slippery in our way of justifying, rationalizing, looking away, distracting all of these different things and, and You're deluding at least ourselves. doing the next step of having the conversation within yourself. Most yeah. people, myself included, every single, I call it um, for myself, uh, suppression energy. And it either comes from internally within me or many times also my surroundings. If I'm at a, like for me, I grew up with, uh, with my family, like a completely valid form of suppression was overeating. Talk about first you get complimented about losing weight, but also like a completely valid way. If you're at like anywhere in life, whether it's a family dinner or even home alone, if you are uncomfortable, like reach for a cucumber, ice cream, anything, fruit, whatever, you know, it could be healthy. It could be unhealthy. And I've started realizing if I'm just like literally at a party and an event anywhere where I'm just like shoving things in my mouth, whether it's healthy things like mixed nuts and vegetables, or if it's unhealthy things, chocolate cake, like, trust me, I do it all. Like, it's just, I've just started being like, okay, what am I suppressing right now? And the reason I'm suppressing something is because whatever I'm feeling isn't safe to be feeling here. Mm-hmm. Because it's very rare you walk into a party or a dinner party or a family's house for Thanksgiving and they say, Aubrey, do not talk about your blank. But you fucking know when you walk into Uncle Joe's house to not talk about your blank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. don't talk about whatever, your ayahuasca, your th- whatever yeah. it is. that Uncle Joe doesn't approve of that side of you. Yeah. And... Or yeah, or you don't approve of you don't approve of you being vulnerable about that side of yourself, and that's internal, right? And that's the internal way that you're kind of avoiding. It's a part this of yourself thing. that you're ashamed of, yeah, or afraid it, of. And it's a problem too. Like, let's say you you talk about friends that are in a bad relationship, right? Like, and they know you you've talked to them about it, you've gone through it, maybe you've, even for a year or two years, you've talked about this relationship is really shitty, you know, and it's like hard. They'll and they'll be like, they'll always tell you like, yeah, it's done. 
but like then it creeps back in and, and you don't get those calls and then they're even ashamed to even talk to you about it anymore because they know that you're they're like fuck you know he's been telling me this all along right. and like i'm doing this again and and all this shame like they'd rather bounce they'd rather bounce or bounce or avoid it or like right, keep it right, secret right. and then that all of that repression is going to build up and it's going to make them feel sick you know and like the the key thing i've had this happen a couple times with with friends of mine recently who've gone back into these toxic relationship situations and it's like you know what i love you no matter what and if you do that like that's okay like you do that go back as many times as you need to go back shame is a motherfucker yeah like don't like don't yeah. hold them in jet like no give them a safe place right. that they can always tell you even if it's the 400th time that they've come to you and be like yep went back to old george you know and fucking george is uh, you know emotionally manipulating me again or george is you know un unhealthy for me and i went back like that's all right i love you like you right as long it's, as it's their okay. chaos in their life isn't becoming your chaos right that's the trick you can't allow that either that's the trick yeah. i've i've definitely with friends been like i love you we've gone through this many times and i've literally had this conversation which isn't a fun conversation but it's like i need to start trusting that you're going to take care of this and i still love you and we're still yeah but we're not going to do this every day yeah it's that it's that love and boundary you know which is like i'm not going to hang out i'm just not going to hang out with both of y'all because you guys always fight when yeah. we're together and that's that that like it doesn't change limited, how much i love I you a, it doesn't change how much i love you yeah i have a limited amount of ways that i can spend my evenings and spend my time enjoying my life on this you know long march home you know like i'm not going to spend it on all of these detours you know triaging this emotional stuff but i love you no matter what and go for it as long as many times as you want to go there as many lessons as you need to learn from your suffering suffer as much as you want to until you're done until you're fucking sick of suffering and i'm gonna love you the whole way isn't that funny that it never stops until you're sick of it <laughs> yeah you have to really Dude, get sick wow of it. that's a really good for me big big change in my life this year happened when i was tired of carrying other people's pain yeah i was just i couldn't do it anymore and that's when i decided i needed to change my man we did it. Did we hit the record? We set the record. Is there music? Is we there balloons? <laughs> we, we need three more minutes. minutes. To what? <laughs> oh, the record's two fifteen. Oh, we can do three minutes, bro. Oh, we got three okay, minutes you know easy. <laughs> You're like three minutes. I got three. Okay, <laughs> you got three minutes all day. Three um, minutes is no thing for you. Come you, on, bring us home. Bring us home, Big okay, Alex. This is big. Do you know, can I say something? I've never been called. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. Because when I was young, I was always like the shortest in class. I was called like Little B or like. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a street rapper. <laughs> little B. Little B. Only <laughs> like if it's L -I, -L I was never possibly. big. Wow. Thank you, man. Yeah. You're, you're welcome, man. Redoing my story <laughs> on the Aubrey Market podcast. Um, if you had to, you know, we've pretty much like covered a lot of ground the past like few hours but it feels like it's sort of like a reflection of where we both are in our lives today what would you say is your biggest takeaway or reflection and we'll both do it of the past couple hours hmm. if you had to wrap a ribbon around what happened the past couple hours you know i think for me whenever i whenever i'm around you like i think there's i, don't know where this I, I think is going. there's uh there's the the 
there's an essence of somebody and then there's like the the magic of somebody and it like being around it and being able to experience it you know like one of the beauties of all these podcast conversations actually any conversation with you like the very present conversation and that's like the, that to me is the best shit right but like the the magic and is is that courage to be to be like to go out there and do it and be persistent because i've i've let a lot of situations go you know even me where i didn't have the confidence and i didn't have the courage to actually like go out there and put myself out there and be willing to risk rejection and i've erred on the side of let's i'll just leave this i'll just leave this it's probably not meant to you know i've still i've still like believe it or not in the skew of things like been too scared to do certain things that i know i should do and like and that's something that coming away from any time i spend with you it's like no man just fucking do it like do it go for it you know and like it's okay to let it go at a certain point you know like don't don't warm buffet myself you know i right. learned that right. lesson too but right. i err i err so far on the other side of like being so terrified of the Warren Buffeting situation and in my own head that, which is really not afraid of that. It's actually just a rationalization and an excuse not to go out there and be like, cause you have to be perfect. Audrey. Uh, yeah, Audrey, yeah, exactly. I have to be, I have to, I have to nail it. And, and I'm still afraid of some form of rejection or still afraid of some form yeah. of denial, you know? And it's like, and some idea that, Oh, well, I'm not quite worthy yet. You know, I haven't quite, I can't, I can't ask this podcast guest to be on my show because I'm not, uh, I'm not big enough yet. You know, like, well, even though like some part of me knows that, man, we would have a fucking dope conversation, but like, uh, I mean, I'll, it'll happen when it happens, you know, but like being That's with such you, a I'm good, like, it's such a good excuse. Like, it's oh, such a good divine time. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah, right. And I yeah. still squirm. It will happen, but it won't happen until you ask. And in the divine ask, timing is me get. being fucking ready to stand up and be like, no, I'm ready. Divide? Like, let's do this. It's going to be an amazing conversation. Yes. Like, listen, this is going to be incredible. We're going to sit down. We're going to blow people's minds. I would love to have you on the show and like have somebody be like, okay. Yeah, fuck yeah. I anyone will respond to that by the way. That what you just <laughs> did, what you just did is it. Yeah. Which is just really believing that it's true. And someone else will be like, "Yeah, that sounds true." Yep. That's I mean, that overwhelmingly I learn that from you every time we hang out. And that I learn that from very you. Very kind of man. Thank you. Yeah. For sure. It's true. Thank you. Uh if I had to put a bow on this, Something I, and I'm not doing this because you said something nice to me. I'm doing this because this is what I was going to say in the first place anyways. Every time I'm with you, and there's a few people, I, I can, you, Inky, Posner, there's a f few people who have a cool combination in my life where I really admire and respect them and I feel comfortable sharing the most shame-covered parts of myself. Um, the only difference is with Inky and Posner, it's done in private with you. It's done <laughs> in front of, you know, live on the podcast, you know. Welcome to Aubrey's Therapy Session where millions of people hear you talk about how shitty you are. It's like, um, no, but I, I think the reason it works with you is because you're not asking me to be that version of myself, you're with trepidation showing up like that. You don't even do it. When I look in your eyes, like I wish people could like be sitting here right now. 
the thing I like about you is when you share these things that are like a little not, you know, the, not the uh, not our best foot forward parts of our personalities that we're working on, that are works in progress. I like, I don't even know if you would agree with this. When I see in your eyes, you're not that excited to be talking about it, but you do it because you know it's a gift to yourself to move through it, even though it's uncomfortable. No and every time you talk about those things and I look at you, I'm like, damn, he does not like that he's talking about this right now, which is much more, dude, it always scares me when someone's like, yeah, I do fucked up things. Yeah, and they like in their eyes, like they're just completely not there. And I'm like, oh God, they have no shame. They have no fear. I'm like, oh God, I'm. It's like an inhuman. It's right, like an they're, inhuman. they're it's almost, they've detached. Again, like a... they, they have detached themselves from the humanity of the growth and the experience. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a little less trustworthy for me personally. And like when I sit with you, you definitely, and it's something I relate to you with is like, yes, this is a part about myself that's a work in progress. And still, I'm going to try. Amen. I love you, man. I love you too, brother. Thank you, my friend. So good to see you as always. <laughs> so fucking good. We set the we set the amp record. We did it. We did it. We did it. We belts coming your way. It's getting hand. It's getting forged by Hephaestus himself. I will. And I it will come out of the fires it. of Tartarus, and it will be a magical belt that you'll be I able will to pretend carry. like I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. Greek mythology. Uh, third door. Get that book. It's fucking amazing. Listen to our last podcast. Uh, follow you on all the socials. Anything else you want to point people to before we get out of here? I'm super grateful, man. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, brother. Thanks, everybody. Peace. I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion with Alex Benayan. Of course, you can check out his book, The Third Door, and hear all the interesting stories of how he got to where he is now. And if you're interested, stop by aubreymarcus.com, sign up for the newsletter, and please leave a review if you like the podcast and let me know what you think. I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. I'll see you guys next week.